2: Uh, welcome back to Hurt Tell. Okay, a tradition unlike any other, because we did it last year, now we're doing it again this year. So now it's a tradition, maybe That's a right. habit. Depends on your point of view. Brian O'Nolan's return, so we can talk about bad Christmas music. Uh, he's an educator. He is a writer at times.com. He's a good friend of the program, although we haven't seen him since last Christmas. That's how popular that segment was. Brian, how are you, sir? I'm doing great. Yourself? Good. The bionic man with the brand new hip. That's why he's sitting down right now. Uh, But we need we need you above the shoulders for this one. Maybe a little bit of your heart. Uh, We did this last year. I wanted to do it again, but though. Boy, howdy, I just did a Christmas trip. I was out of town. You know, everybody's playing Christmas music. My God, is there a lot of bad Christmas music of the last 10, 15 years?
0: There really, really is. And I was thinking um, because I actually was we're talking bad Christmas music, but I want to defend a Christmas song here because couple weeks ago my son my younger son he's 12 he comes home and he says you know what the worst christmas song is and of course i've got a catalog catalog in my head and i'm thinking well okay he's got about a dozen he could pick from what did he say keep in mind we're talking about a seventh grader what song did he pick
2: i don't know grinch
0: mariah carries all i want for christmas is you
2: now the kids are all right he's got a point
0: i had to take a moment and i said you know what I think I know what the problem is. and I don't think it's the song. I think it's partly the fact that it is. And check me here. Cause you're a little bit more tuned into pop music than I am. I feel like it's the last or most recent entry into the Christmas music canon, that it's the most recent standard that has been released. And I was shocked when I looked it up. I, I, I looked it up cause I wasn't sure what year it had been released. And I was guessing Late '90s, boy, was I wrong. 1994, this song was released, and it was a throwback at the time, which I didn't realize until this morning when I was thinking about it. It's it's really a throwback to sort of classic Motown. If you told me that uh, you know Ronnie Spector had recorded it uh, in 1968, I I, I believe you, um, but no, it's a, a Mariah Carey original, and I think it has become so ubiquitous. It's the first song you hear at the end of October in Target. And I think that that it's it's so frequently heard that a lot of people are just annoyed by it. Whereas it's genuinely a really good song. It's just all positivity. Um, it's a love song about Christmas and, and what's not to like about that? I mean, I guess on the 500,000th hearing, it might get a little annoying, but um, so I just wanna defend that one for a moment. Um, Not that it's my favorite, but I think that, you know, it's, I looked it up. It's the 12th highest selling single of all time. And you don't get that high on the charts without being a decent song.
2: No, it's a throwback to the, I think you're right. It was a throwback song at the time. The problem is it's been beaten over the head of everybody for the better part of the last 30 years. So that's why we're all sick of it. Yeah, Yeah, but you talked about the canon, though. It depends on your definition. That's probably the most, by far, the most commercially successful of the recent, and recent, I mean the last 30, 40 years, you know, because we have the classical Christmas music, then you have the standards from, you know, the 60s, 70s, 50s, white Christmas, all that stuff. Yeah. Of the modern era stuff of the last 40 years, it's clearly the most commercially successful, the most well-known. I don't think there's any debate about that. No, it's
0: not even close. Of, Of Christmas, not even Christmas, sorry just songs singles. Yeah. the only other christmas song in english that has sold more is white christmas and that's the greatest selling single of all time i mean they literally Which was had- an
2: accident we did that one last year yeah the verse of white christmas that we know was actually the original third verse and it was like a 20 minute song
0: yeah and it wasn't bing crosby's song at first um and he ended up actually having to re-record the The master of that song, because the original master was so worn out from so many pressings of the record that they had to go in and re-record it, uh, which is just mind-boggling. It sold fifty million copies, um, and to to Mariah Carey's only eighteen for "All I Want for Christmas Is You." And then there's another Christmas song that has sold thirty million songs, uh, thirty million copies, and I'd never even heard of it. It's a French song called. Uh, Petit Papa Noel, and I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, but it's also from the 40s. So, I mean, when we're talking about most recent entry to the canon, it's the best selling since White Christmas, at least in English. Um, Christmas song, it's it's amazing. And yes, we've it's been beaten over our heads, but I think to some degree that's because there hasn't been anything anywhere close to
2: it since. Yeah, so I've pulled up a list. I don't think of this as a Christmas song because it came from the movie, but I get why they're adding it as a Christmas song, but do you want to build a snowman from frozen is way up there on the list now as a selling single. I don't think of that as a Christmas song. I think of it as a winter song. I know I'm splitting hairs there, but okay. Um, But I mean, it's I'll allow it. I, I, but I don't think that's a Christmas song. No, it's not. Um, uh Sabotage, better known to most normal people. If you're into 80s metal, you know them as Sabotage. Most people know them as the Trans Siberian Orchestra because that's their second act where they made a god bad of money. Uh Christmas Eve Sarajevo, that is, of course, the redoing of the Carol of the Bells, the orchestra metal version of it. Everybody loves that. Yep. That's next on the list. I'm looking at. And then as far as modern stuff, um, uh, Mistletoe by Justin Bieber, I'm not going to acknowledge that exists. Sorry, <laughs> just not going to do it. No. Rocking around the Christmas tree. That's Brenda Lee. I put that in that um, new classics, the 50s, 60s, 70s. Yep. Uh, it came out in 58. So I'm going to move that one back. Where are you Christmas, Faith Hill? Now that came from the Grinch movie from you know, 15, 20 years ago now. Uh, that came out in 2000, which was 22 years ago. Sorry, folks. 23 years ago That the uh
0: that's the jim carrey that's the
2: jim carrey ron howard grinch movie okay i'm good with that that's a good song by the way that's good that works um jose feliciano's Feliz navidad from the 70s is on that list that's good yep that's any other version of that song is hot garbage and i don't want to hear it but his is fantastic crank that up yep. every single time yeah jingle bell rock from 57 of course that's become a classic then we get into the sticky one as far as the modern canon go because her fans are uh ridiculous, although I do like her as an artist. Wham busted out last Christmas in '84, and then Taylor Swift covered it. And now you get into a modern and then an even more modern take. And I actually like the Taylor Swift version. I'm just going to admit it.
0: I will I will confess I am not familiar with that version. I can't stand the original.
2: Um the there's there's
0: a there's a logic to the lyrics that just fails me um you know last Christmas, I gave you my heart, okay, I get that metaphor, uh, but the very next day you gave it away so how did how did the recipient of my love give my love to somebody it's just I, at that point I'm done I'm sorry, am I being hold. Peda-
2: no, yes. hold that thought because one of mine that I really dislike has a logic flaw in it as well, and I'm gonna to use that same string of logic. Here's a new one I'm going to add to the list, though. But Pentatonics, if you're not familiar with that, they're a vocal group. Uh, they got big on, um, I think, America's Got Talent or one of those shows. They're really good. They've been around for a while. They've got multiple Christmas songs, mostly covers, uh, that have gone platinum. I'm looking at this list again. Uh, here's one I really like The Christmas Time is Here. That's the Charlie Brown piano score, uh, the Vince Guaraldi trio, who did all that jazz music for the original Peanuts. Yeah. God, there's no way I was walking by a hotel front in a major American city last week on vacation in an undisclosed location. just walking by and hearing it played like there's it's it's like a friggin warm blanket every time you hear it I love that song so much everything on that Christmas special by the way but especially that well, is so so good
0: I mean that's the that's the one that everybody thinks of if, if you told somebody that there was there were no other songs they'd probably believe you most people they hadn't seen it
2: all right let's get to it crappy Bad, horrible Christmas songs. Uh, Paul McCartney is a legend. He's an all-timer. He's in multiple <laughs> Hall of Fames multiple times. But, uh, wonderful Christmas time is an all-timer of a bad song. Christmas and or otherwise, yeah. The auditory equivalent to syphilis. It eats your brain, rots your soul, and you die embarrassed, and nobody wants to be anywhere near you. Oh, it's a more thoughts.
0: Uh, it it is. It sounds to me like someone took. Took Paul and said, "Hey, sir Paul, you're you're one of the greatest songwriters of all time, and I'm not going to argue with that." Um, they took him and they put him in a room and they gave him an hour and they said, "Write a Christmas song." He took 15 minutes. This is what we got, and he just walked out. I mean, it's it's very um, half-bottomed, if, if you will. It's the the melody is it's like he thought he could get away with a simple melody because it's a christmas song whereas yeah there's a lot about christmas that is simple and nostalgic and and the lyrics are nothing to write home about but a lot of christmas songs have you know kind of sent banal senti- sentimentality to them and that's okay we expect that that's part of what what this season is for people but it's it's like he just he mailed it in and ding dong ding dong, oh, paul Paul, at least John didn't try to one-up you by also writing a terrible, terrible
2: Christmas song. Oh, wait, he did. Yeah, it was bad, too, but Paul takes the cake on this Oh, definitely. Now, there's some real stinkers on the list. I'm pulling from Esquire's list of the worst Christmas songs of all time. Uh, There's multiple cover songs on here from people that are really, really talented. Jackson Fives are on here for their cover of uh, Kissing Santa Claus, you know. Oh, (sighs) John Denver doing, and I'm going to just quote this because I still can't believe this really happened. But John Denver did, Please Daddy Don't Get Drunk on Christmas. We got to mention that one. The Bon Jovi song, um, Back backdoor Santa. I'm going to leave that one without any further comment. Thank There's you. been some other ones. Um, New Song did a song called The Christmas Shoes. This set back humanity and charitable giving Probably three or four centuries minimum. This is this is the most god awful drivel. I hate it so much. It's terrible. I, it it should just be blasted into space and beg the aliens to come blow our planet up. I hate yeah. this song so bad. Yeah, I heard it. I heard it in a Ross while I was trying to do some upscale shopping the other day, and I just wanted to just go into a fit of rage. I'm buying nothing. <laughs> that
0: I mean it. It is. It is an objectively terrible song. It also has that, that country music thing where they try to pour it on really thick
2: and it gets poured on so thick that it just thick. Thick. They poured the asphalt for I-95 thinner than this thing.
0: Oh yeah. And it's, uh, it's solidified crap. It's, it's the worst possible combination of everything that, you know, it's, it's, the bad songs are bad because sometimes it's a bad performance. Sometimes it's, you know, please, daddy, don't get drunk on Christmas or um, or having, you know, little Michael Jackson singing I saw mommy kissing Santa Claus. And it's just a little weird. But sometimes it's also because people analyze Christmas songs. And I think, OK, what makes a good Christmas song? Well, you want. You want home. You want love. You want giving. You want charity. You want some sentimentality. You want some sweetness. And people will even take a little bit of extra sweetness, and then they dump it all on top, and it's just too much. It's too much. There's a balance that the real stinkers don't get.
2: All right, here's one I'm going to get hate mail for, but I don't care. Mary, Did You Know is a god-awful Christmas song. We We were talking about the logic the other day. It's like, Mary, did you know? God sent an angel to explain it to her. I'm pretty sure when the Almighty sends an angel specifically to you by name to explain something to you that's getting ready to happen, you not only know, I'm pretty sure it didn't slip her mind afterwards. So, yeah. yes, I hate this song. I know people like it. I know there's religious connotations. I'm all about Faith at Christmas. I hate this song so much. I want to rip out my ears every time I hear it. It's, did you know? Did you? No. So we're going to make her infantile and stupid and incomprehensible and act like she didn't understand something, just to reiterate, that a freaking angel told her.
0: Not just any angel. Not just any angel. Gabriel himself coming down. So it's
2: our thesis that Gabriel is a bad communicator. Is that the theory here?
0: He explicitly needed her to say, sure, go ahead. Let's do this. It's like she had time to think about it. She pondered it it in her heart and then forgot completely. It's all it's. Yes. I mean, I think it is. If you can get every denomination of Christianity. To agree on on one thing as far as doctrine goes, and that's that, yeah, Mary knew, and you're going to write a song based not on that? Yeah, it's hot garbage.
2: So bad, and I'm just going to say this. I think the newer Christmas songs, the more religious they try to get, it's almost like the worst they get. At least if it's a pop song, you can go, well, I'm tired of it because it's a pop song, and it's an earworm, and it just drives me nuts like Mariah Carey. Yeah. There, there's... It's like trying to write a new hymn. It's like the hymns are classics for a reason. I'm not against you writing a new one, but you're not going to write another classic hymn.
0: Well, the standard is pretty high, isn't it? I yeah. mean, we talked about earlier, two Christmas songs have collectively sold 68 million copies. Like, that's that's incredible. And those two songs are ubiquitous. And, you, you, you know, you come at the king, you better not miss. Well some people miss pretty spectacularly
2: and it's that's two songs in 2000 some odd years of having Christmas though. And about four or 500 years in its current modern form as we know it in variations. Okay. I'll give you that. Um, Your, your, Your window of winning here is really small. Oh, absolutely. Not only is it small, but you've got,
0: you've got absolute classics that people can, Come and just off the top of their head and you've got you've got a whole collection of songs this canon that and now everybody's got a different date some people are okay with hearing the music starting you know right after thanks right after thanksgiving some people are right after halloween um my family we split the difference and go november 15th it's one of my kids birthdays but you've got this whole collection of music that everybody just saves for this time of year i don't want to hear it in july i don't want to hear it in march this time of year these are the songs we want to hear and if you want to add to that it's got to be something pretty special
2: see my i'm one of these thanksgiving guys like i don't want to hear a word about christmas until after thanksgiving dinner now as soon as dinner's done let's go crazy let's decorate everything let's crank the music up we turn it on but i don't want to hear peep about christmas till thanksgiving's over
0: and i i you know even though i'm a different date person i totally respect that and i think it's it's part of the specialness of this season is that we take all these things that we love and we, we say 11 months out of the year ish. Um, we don't want to have them because it's just not appropriate. And then this time hits, whether you, you call it the Christmas season or you call it, uh, you know, advent or whatever you call it, this time happens. And and it's special. And it's so special that we only want to have it now. And then we put it away in couple of weeks from now actually
2: brian o'nolan all right give me your favorite christmas song i see the christmas tree back there when the uh, the, when the o'nolan clan gathers around and you limp over to your chair as head of the household with your new uh medical marvel hip a lot less a lot less limping what uh what's the number one christmas song in the o'nolan house
0: well, there are four of us. You're going to get four different answers. For me, I'm I have to say, Oh come, O oh, come, Emmanuel," because I'm a I'm a real I'm a traditionalist, and that one is one of the very few actually legit Advent songs. It's it's not about hey, Christmas is here. It's Christmas is coming. Um, we don't have a ton of those, and I love the fact that it goes back hundreds and hundreds of years the lyrics to that are are very old and in latin um the original and don't ask me to quote them i don't speak a word of it um but that's that's got to be my go-to if, if i only get one that's the one i'll take how about
2: you there's a couple there's a tradition in our family uh my mom's family gets together on christmas eve in the home place um my uh my one cousin who is a supremely talented singer sings Oh holy night acapella. That one always is a, is a special one because that's, that's a long running tradition. Now cousin Kim sings Oh holy night acapella after everybody's been singing carols for a good while. It's Wait. ridiculous. That's one of those songs though. It's like how it's presented is everything. Yes. Um, as far as me just enjoying a Christmas song, I talked about the, the, the Charlie Brown stuff. I know that sounds silly, that just that little jazz riff of Christmas time is here. Look, I love White Christmas. I love the hymns, Silent Night, all that stuff. Um, I even like Taylor Swift singing, you know, give my heart away to get it back because, you know, FedEx was closed or whatever. I just that little jazz I'm telling you the truth. I was walking down the streets, I was in Chicago, I'm walking down the street and a hotel is playing it at the car check station. And I literally just kind of stopped and smiled. And I couldn't help it. Like, there's something about that Charlie Brown Christmas, any of that little jazzy, you know, Godardi trio stuff, but that particular song done that way with just that real mellow offbeat riff and the piano, and I think about the piano at home growing up and sitting around the tree, that just hits me every single time. And I know that's probably not alone a lot of people's high list for Christmas songs, but it's on me, and it just happened to me again. Just randomly, I hear that, and I'm just like, like, no matter what I'm doing, what I'm thinking, I'm just like, Ah, Christmas. yeah, And but Christmas I, is so p- commercialized now. There's very few things that are Christmassy that will do that anymore. But that does it every time.
0: And I think what you're talking about there is like, yes, it, for you, it's that riff. But I think everybody, just about everybody, has some... All little, the good people. All the good people um, has some little moment in a song that reminds them of childhood... Safety when things were when things were good and that sort of rose colored glasses view of the past that we often have, and so that musical that's a musical cue for you. But we've all got them. I, if if I hear uh, a decent version, especially uh, if it's a sort of sort of Gregorian chant style version of O Come, o Come o Emmanuel, I, I am picturing my house when I was a kid. It's uh, dark. I can see the Christmas tree. I, the, I can see specific uh ornaments that are on the tree there's snow outside the windows because there's always snow outside the windows at christmas time in the past um it, it just it brings you back and it doesn't you know everybody's got their own little cue but when it hits you it hits you and can't miss it
2: i completely agree uh O'Nolan. nolan we're gonna have you back we'll do the good christmas songs here as we get closer to christmas uh you write at ordinary times let folks know where they can know and follow you my friend because you're a brilliant writer you do sar you do sarcasm better than just about anybody i know oh, let thanks. folks know where they can follow you and keep track of you
0: yep uh, not only am i at uh ordinary-times.com you can find me there um but i'm also on twitter at brian o'nolan brian with a y and um i try to keep it clean but i'm uh, not always successful <laughs>
2: Well, until you sent Mike Pence to the gathering of the Juggalos, but that's another story for another. <laughs> it's <day>. another, <laughs> which you need to go read, by the way. Fantastic stuff, uh Brian and Nolan, Appreciate you, my friend. Thank you. Right. Merry Christmas, everybody. And Merry Christmas. Thank you, sir. Yes. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, one of our favorites, good friend of ours. We love him to death, Daniel Martino, one of our great Young Voices contributors. He is out there fighting authoritative socialism and communism like a beast. I love this guy. Uh, the Dissident Project, something you're really need to check into. Daniel, my friend, been a while. Let's talk. Good to see you.
3: Good to see you too, Andrew.
2: All right, sir. Uh, I want to ask you, starting with this. You're, of course, from Venezuela. I This court case... This Saab court case down in Miami, it didn't get a whole lot of press, but you tweeted about it. And it's not just the court case that I want to talk about. You talk with the Dissident Project about the dissidents and the activists and how dissent is crushed and how the propaganda by these dictators works. This court case is a good example of because this is U.S. soil. This is down in Miami. We have this Saab case where um, this is an ally of Nicolas Maduro's government. And they're trying him. But what happened in the courtroom and what you tweeted about goes to what you talk about with the distance project. All these supporters of the Maduro government shows up and they're protesting and they're trying to do a show of force. That's not organic. That's a very old tactic. This is one of those ways that these dictators exert influence, even on American soil, that I don't think a lot of people are aware of. And I think it's really important to point it out. And you were tweeting about it. Why don't you tell us what you think about that?
3: Yeah well what's going on is that Alex Saab is a businessman who uh, has mo- laundered money for the Maduro regime for many years the United States indicted him on money laundering because that's what he is and the Maduro regime is arguing that he was on a diplomatic passport after the fact that he was arrested, when he was not on a diplomatic passport, he isn't even born in Venezuela. This is a man who is actually Colombian with Lebanese citizenship. Uh, so, so this is not a, a Venezuelan individual. And now, because we have we have him in U.S. custody and there's a trial, they're sending paid people, people who who are involved with them in Miami to the the trial to to show. This fake support for for the Venezuelan regime. What I was saying is that if there are people receiving payments from the Maduro regime living in the United States, that's something that the FBI and the U.S. Department of Justice need to know about because that's in violation of U.S. law and sanctions as well.
2: Right. And the sanctions are the important part here, not just because of the trial itself. The reason they have to launder money is because they're trying to get around all the sanctions and this sort of thing. But anytime you have a foreign government exerting influence like that, look, this isn't a courtroom like this. This isn't just like on a street corner. This is in something that's an integral part of our criminal justice system courthouse. That's a symbol of the U.S. government. This is pretty blatant stuff, and it's the stuff that doesn't trend on Twitter. But it's very much a power move to try to do things like this, isn't it?
3: Well, it is because it shows that the Maduro regime has people inside the United States. And these aren't just naive supporters who, who are just, you know, answering a call. Um, th- this is a, a well-organized group of, of people who are not just in the U.S., but all over the world. And, and that is finance from Venezuela, from Cuba, from Nicaragua. And if they can do that and show up in a U.S. courtroom... You know, they can do a lot of other things and they can lobby legislatures and they even have, you know, people working in, in the U.S. government. And, and that's what's scary. Right. It's kind of like what happened in the Cold War. The Soviet Union had spies here. The, you know, the Cubans had spies here uh, and still do. And now the Venezuelans do as well.
2: This is important. Daniel Martino joining us because we know um, the immigration crisis in Venezuela is driven by the political situation and the economic situation. It's inarguable. That's what's driving the immigration crisis out of there. The fact that they can reach here, and now it seems like after a few years ago where it looked like it was a little little shaky, the Maduro regime not only looks pretty stable now, but now they're back to exerting influence. They're opening their border with Colombia now, they just announced. Uh, they've been doing some ties with Russia because Russia's desperate for any ally they can get right now. So there's been some of that going on. This is not only a stabilized regime, they're starting to try and do exert some influence again. Is that, is that an inaccurate way to look at this?
3: Well, the, you know, the Chavez, the, the former dictator who passed away and, and gave uh, power to Maduro afterwards uh, in 2013, he had a strategy of asymmetrical warfare against the United States and that came in different forms. So one of one of the his tools against America was the cocaine trafficking, in which he was personally involved with, just like Maduro is, and the rest of the Venezuelan regime and military are. That's uh, what the cartel of the sons, the el cartel de los soles, which is indicted by the, the Department of Justice, it does. They they send cocaine from Venezuela to the United States in massive numbers. Um, so, so that's on one end. The other end is is um, information warfare. They have channels that are financed by the Venezuelan regime that, and uh, you know, try to persuade people in the United States. One of them is TeleSUR. TeleSUR not only has, um, you know, a, a, a traditional TV channel presence, but a social media presence in Twitter, in YouTube, in in Instagram, everywhere. And that's where they try to say that anything that happens in Venezuela that's bad, it's because of US imperialism instead of socialism, which is the reality. Uh, and, and then there's the, the more obvious warfare of uh, you know criminals yes. and, and people who come here that they try to send or, or, or criminals that are international and they try to collaborate with Iran and with Russia and Cuba. And all of this, their, their goal ultimately is to take over more countries, to make sure that there are more people on their side, um, more money to steal, that the United States stops sanctioning them, and that's why they do this information warfare, to persuade people against the sanctions. And, and ultimately, so that they can stay in power in perpetuity.
2: Yeah. Daniel Martina joining us. You just mentioned it. <clears throat> Asymmetric warfare politically with a lot of different motion. What does it tell us, though, that this is warfare that they're fighting? They see this as warfare. They see this as a geopolitical struggle. But the United States policy and this is bipartisan because it goes back a couple of administrations now since Hugo Chavez. Policy wise, Americans, government and the American people don't seem to be treating it as that kind of a problem. How do we bridge that gap of like, look, they're doing this on purpose and we're not even really paying attention to it other than when the immigration stuff pops up on the radar here, there and yonder. How do we start changing that? Because, you know, if you got one person fighting you and you're not even paying attention, that's when you kind of get a lot of harm done just by inertia and by ignorance and by not paying any attention whatsoever to it.
3: Yeah, Um well, I think that the what's happening with Russia and Ukraine is actually a good opportunity to let people know about this, because Venezuela isn't the only foreign state that does this against the United States. Russia has been doing it for far longer. And and Russia has Russia today, uh, where they both bring what's the Russian population and the um, the American population that, that tunes into those channels, but they also have a bunch of little offshoots that they collaborate with Iran and Venezuela with, channels like the Gray Zone, uh, which su- supposedly say they're independent journalists, but when you look into their legal structure, they are part of Russian and, and other foreign state entities, and they have personally met with the dictators of all these places and, and, and expressed their support. So, you know, the Chinese pay YouTubers to promote their pro-CCP content so that they can brainwash the, the youth in the United States. And it is an opportunity to crack down these things because the reality is that the First Amendment applies to people in the United States. It doesn't apply to foreign states trying to send money into America. And we can and should restrict the use of foreign government money in U.S. media. That is not restricting U.S. media. You can say whatever you want in favor of of Putin, in favor of Maduro, if you're in the United States, if you use your own money, not if you use the money of the Venezuelan regime that comes from human rights violations and, and it's blood money. That's what we should be restricting.
4: Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcast at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you.
2: Yeah, Daniel DiMartino, you talked about this before, but I just want to reiterate it. The scale of this, the numbers don't really, seven million refugees out of Venezuela since the Maduro regime that's a catastrophic number by any measure about 450 to 500,000 depending on which numbers you want to use the UN uses 465,000 wound up in the US obviously Colombia and Peru and Chile they get a lot of them just geographically Spain and Brazil this is a massive diaspora of Venezuelans that have left the country before we talk about the American side of the immigration just talk about what that does to Venezuela itself, the brain drain, the talent drain, the people that are leaving. There's just no way to really comprehend what that does to a country is there
3: well the the most shocking part um on on really the the part that Venezuelans feel the most is that now there's so many empty houses and empty buildings in the country, um you know whole neighborhoods that are half full um you know, friends and families that are separated. There's virtually no family in the country that doesn't have at least one family member who has left. There are many families that their entire the entire family has left. And that, that is destructive for, for the social fabric of a, of a region, of a country. And, and it's really sad. Economically, though, I got to say that the immigration has helped those who, has, who have stayed Because since there's no way to make money and survive in the country, the fact that 7 million out of 30 million people have left and are sending back remittances every month is actually what's maintaining the people who stay behind alive. And so, um, you know, in that way, Venezuela has become similar to Cuba a parasitic economy where they can't produce anything because of the government regime inside, but it's it's dependent on its diaspora abroad to send money back in to survive.
2: Yeah, Daniel Di- Martino joining us. Let's talk about those immigrants in America, though. Just back in October, the U.S. started to change their policy. It had been that Venezuelans were winning their asylum cases at a much higher rate than most of the other people groups that were coming in. Crackdown is not the right word, but they basically said, hey, the Venezuelans at the border are going to be like everybody else. They're going to have to be in line. Then they turn around and say, well, we're going to make these twenty four thousand slots for them. Well, the problem is there's thirty three thousand Venezuelans a month trying to come in. Should there be a different policy towards Venezuelans? We just saw here recently last week or two that they've extended uh, protection for Haitian refugees. We've had Ukrainian refugees things. We've had, of course, the Afghanistan refugees that we brought over. Should the U.S. policy be different towards Venezuelan refugees coming from this country? And what should it look like?
3: Well, let let me begin by explaining a little bit of what the policy is and and, and was with respect to asylum seekers in general in the southern border Um, and how Venezuelans used to get asylum before. So because Venezuela used to be a rich country, a lot of Venezuelans had U.S. tourist visas in their passports and That meant that when things got rough, a lot of Venezuelans who who wanted to come seek asylum in America, they just bought a plane ticket, traveled to the States, and once they were here, they claimed asylum. That is a process that happened for over a decade, and nobody even noticed because this was our orderly processed planes. You know, nobody knew it was happening, really. Um, These were people with more means because they had the means to buy a plane ticket. Um, but what happened is that since the 2019, there's no U.S. embassy in Venezuela. Even then, nobody's getting tourist visas to come to the United States because, every, you know, the, the U.S. embassy thinks, I think rightfully, that if you're going to get a tourist visa specifically to come to the States right now, you're likely going to want to get asylum and, and overstay. So they just don't give it to you. And what happens is that a lot of Venezuelans just say that the, their only path, uh, realistically it's true, their only path is to walk to to the southern border and claim asylum there. Now since the pandemic there's been a policy called Title 42 which is really uh, a, a policy to, to deter disease into the United States. And so the U.S. government has been claiming for many years now, for over two, that uh, asylum seekers are bringing COVID-19 into the United States, which is a lie, and that's why the judges have, you know, already overturned Title 42 and have given until this month to the U.S. government to do something else, or Title 42 ends regardless, because it is not true on public health grounds. You cannot justify you know, forbidding asylum against U.S. law, by the way, because U.S. law says that if you present yourself at the southern border and at a port of entry, you, you you have the right to seek asylum. Uh, if, if they deny you asylum later because your claim is false, they can deport you, but on, on its face, you have the right to seek asylum and wait inside the country. Um, what happened was that the the Biden administration was not applying Title 42 to Venezuelans. Uh, In October, they started applying Title 42 to Venezuelans and in exchange, they gave Venezuelans a parole program, which means that you can apply from Venezuela to come to the States if you have a sponsor. The goal, and I think it's a good goal, is to make the process more orderly so that there are no Venezuelans getting shipped to New York in, in buses. And end up in homeless shelters, which is bad for, you know, the Venezuelans and it's bad for crime in the city. Uh, And so I I support that move. The problem is that it was too few spots, as you mentioned, you know, just 24,000 that more than those have applied already. And by the end of the year, they're going to run out. And, um, and anyway, Title 42 is going to end. So what I think that the Biden administration should be doing is how do we make sure we have an orderly asylum process at the southern border and before the border? So can we change the law or can we do something by executive action such that people can apply for asylum online in their home country safely? But at the same time not wait months because they don't have months you know because that for a race there's a reason they seek asylum they don't have months to stay in their countries um or do we have a, or or can we change our policies here such that when people get to the southern border they are left in processing centers not not allowing the rest of the country and the decisions are quick you know less than a week rather than than a year because if the decisions are going to take a year you cannot keep somebody who has not committed a crime in jail for one year that's inhumane because I know people who have been left in those ICE facilities crossing the southern border for months without committing any crime just waiting for to be released and without even an asylum decision and let me tell you the conditions are not good they're really dire the food is terrible you know the the treatment is not right and, and so we need to make sure that if they're going to stay in any government facility, these people claiming asylum, it needs to be less than a week. And if the decision is negative, they get deported. And if the decision is affirmative, they get admitted with full rights inside the United States.
2: Yeah, Daniel Martino. You do a lot of public speaking, so you've been around the country for quite a bit now. When you're talking to people about Venezuela, is it, oh, I didn't realize that was happening or I didn't realize how bad it was? What's the level of knowledge? What's the response you get when they get that human face in front of them and it's not just a news story or a tweet? Tell me the reaction you get when you're just talking to people about what's going on in Venezuela, the reaction you get to it.
3: Well, they didn't know that, for example, uh, none of the groups I speak to knew that Venezuelans were the largest refugee crisis in the world right now. Because everybody talks about Ukraine and Syria and Afghanistan, uh, yet nobody knows that it is 7 million Venezuelan refugees compared to 6.5 and and so for for Syria and and Ukraine each. Um, and, And so... You know, people get shocked by that, especially the kids, since I speak at high schools and middle schools to, to talk about Venezuela and what happened there too. Uh, the kids had no idea about anything happening in Venezuela at all. They didn't know Venezuela was a socialist country. And they didn't know Venezuelans were starving or leaving their country. Um, and, and they were surprised to learn that there is another socialist government in the Western Hemisphere, aside from Cuba. And so that's why I think that task is so important, because Venezuela, unlike Cuba, unlike the USSR, unlike Eastern Europe and China, is the only socialist country who was destroyed by socialism through a democratic election at the beginning. It was something that the Venezuelan people elected, and they made a mistake. Now we can't get them out democratically, of course. Um, you know, even though the Venezuelan people want that. Um, and, and I think that that's an important story to tell because Venezuela used to be a rich country and it fell because people elected the wrong uh, the wrong platform, the wrong ideology into power. And, and that's something that could happen to the United States.
2: Yeah, Daniel DiMartino, let's talk about the United States real quick, though. I... Look, immigration's a mess in the U.S. You just walked through it. That's just the Venezuelans. You've got all these other people groups that's got similar situations, good, better, and different. The immigration situation's bad. We don't want to deal with it in a comprehensive manner. We want to keep piecemeal in it. There's political things. There's economic things. It's bad. But turning that noise down, when you just have to deal with some idiot online, like, well, deport him because they didn't like something you say. When you deal with crap like that, how do we change this conversation online? And I don't mean the people that are just bad faith and just throwing things out because there's a long strand of anti-immigration America. You can go look at political cartoons from the 1800s. This is not new. How do we talk about this better? We ourselves, social media in person. Is it putting human faces on it? Is it talking about the legal and the ramifications and the regulations that can be changed and should be changed? Is it talking about the economic side of it? Is it some combination of it? How do we talk about this better? Because right now it's just something we throw at each other online, and that's not getting anything accomplished.
3: Yeah, uh, I am a I'm a believer that personal interactions and putting a face to people uh, is very impactful, and it's very different to talk about something in the abstract than to talk about your friend or talk about your family member who you know very intimately how the immigration process was for them and and what it's really like and the problem that we have on immigration in this country is that you know 80% of Americans have no idea how the legal immigration system works and most people think that there is simply an application process that any reasonably good and normal skilled person uh with some type of tie to the United States can can come legally go through and, and come here and that's not true. And so uh you know but but a lot of people understand that it's broken they just don't know how to fix it and and that's that's what we need to to make sure people know and, and then and then we can start a conversation over how to do it. Um there's a lot of uh evidence in the economics literature that shows that the longer you have interacted with immigrants, the more accepting you become of immigrants. So the, the continuous interaction in your communities, you know, a community that has no immigrants, has no idea how immigrants are and tends to actually be more opposed to immigration. But communities that have had, uh, a, you know, a, a number of immigrants, it doesn't have to be a high number, maybe 10% of them, maybe 5% of them are immigrants uh, for a long period of time. Uh, tend to be more accepting of immigrants. And so if, if we make sure that other immigrants make sure that they befriend more people who are from the United States, if we make sure that, you know, that those kinds of relationships keep being built, I, I'm, I'm confident that over the long term, um, you know, over the next 10, 20, 30 years, the United States, which is already an extremely tolerant and accepting country, um, would become even more so of immigrants.
2: And we know that uh, economically and the strength of our country, look, you either have to have a high birth rate or you got to have immigrants. Like that's just, it's just a math problem. If you want to be an economic power, that's what you need. And we're fortunate where we still, even with all our problems are a, a beacon of freedom. And a lot of people around the world want to come here and make their lives here. In America, And we we should find a good path to get the best people possible and get the most freedom and economic opportunity for as much people as possible. But that's a longer conversation for another day. My friend, Daniel DiMartino, you're so good on this stuff and I so appreciate you. But the work you do with going to the schools and the meetings and the organizations you talk to with the dissident Project, that's probably more important than talking to me. Talk about that for just a second. Let people know where they can find that and the other things you're working on until we get you back on Hurtel again, my friend.
3: Yes. So the distant project is the only speakers bureau in the United States who sends immigrants who lived in authoritarian countries into high schools, into middle schools, to tell their stories about how these socialists and other forms of authoritarian regimes, uh, you know, made them flee their their country, ruined their 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 lives and their families' lives. And, and so that we can create gratitude among the young American students for living in America and not only make them grateful to live in America, but also allow them to understand free enterprise is what made America prosperous and, and, and so great to live in. Um, and, and, and so we we do this by, by traveling to high schools at no cost. Uh, we have right now five speakers from uh, four different countries. We're going to expand in February to about 15 speakers. So we're going a triple our size because of the high demand that we have from schools. And and uh, it's truly an amazing experience for the kids. That You can find us at dissidentproject.org, and you can support us either by donating or by recommending a speaker. If you want to apply yourself if you are from an authoritarian country and live in the States, or if you're a teacher, you're a staff member, um you you can invite us to your school it has no cost to you we'll, we'll just find a mutually agreeable date and speaker and we'll make it happen
2: yeah daniel Martino. the thing about that too is when you're and i've talked to several of those dissident somebody like francis who's like hey when i was your age i was in the streets of hong kong having to protest that really drives stuff home in a way that just talking about it or seeing a video or whatever when you talk to those kids you can see it in their face, right? Like it just hits different when it's somebody close to their age telling them these stories, right?
3: It does. And, and for me, it was when I was 17 that I left Venezuela, right? And I was, you know, living through hyperinflation at the age of these kids. And, uh, you know, I came yesterday from Wichita where I was speaking at a middle school and I was showing the kids. Um, you know, cash from Venezuela, and they were uh, very curious about it. And, and when they were seeing the the videos from Venezuela, they were all very curious and came to ask to ask me a lot of questions. And 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 you see that it has an impact. You know, in person interaction is more meaningful. A talk is is relatively cheap, and you can impact hundreds of students in each of them. Um, and and the goal is such that. These are young students before they go through what I believe is the college brainwashing machine. And the next time in the in five years when they hear the word socialism for the first time from a politician, what they're going to think about is not free stuff. They're going to think about the Venezuelan guy who came to their high school a few years ago and told them how socialism ruined his life or the uh, North Korean girl who told them the same. And, and that's the goal.
2: Yeah, and it's a very good work. Um Daniel DiMartino, Martino, let folks know everything, follow you on social media and what you got coming up before we let you go.
3: Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel D Daniel Daniel's the regular name, and martino is D-I-M-A-R-T-I-N-O. And you can also find my find my, my work and, and subscribe to to my content on my website at DanielDiMartino.com.
2: Yep, you do great work, my friend. We will have you back frequently as often as I can get you. Look forward to seeing you soon. Daniel DiMartino, thank you so much for the time, sir.
3: Likewise, Andrew.
2: Yes, sir. Ah, Welcome back to Hurtel. She has become one of our favorites. She is fantastic. She is Finesse Moreno Rivera. She is a criminal psychologist and also a criminologist. Those are really big words. She's going to explain what those means to us in just a second. Great to see you again, my friend. How are you?
5: Good. How are you, Andrew? Thank you so much for having me back. I feel like I'm becoming more of a regular on here.
2: I want you to be a regular. You're really good at this stuff. She has worked everywhere um, in government, in social justice groups, in places that want criminal reform. Let's start right there, though. We've got let's you know, we're into the reelection cycle now. So let's just round it off a little bit. We're about halfway through the Biden presidency now. Where are we at on things like criminal justice and reform things. We did the marijuana thing. Give us kind of a scorecard here for the Biden administration in the first two years, where we're at on things like criminal justice, criminal justice reform, social justice concerns, all these sorts of things.
5: So when it comes to drug reform, specifically with the Biden administration, as everyone has known, um, he has always had that tough on crime viewpoint uh, within the criminal justice, especially when they are looking at drugs. Um, and has apologized on multiple occasions for the uh, slip-up, which is actually not even the word that should be utilized for the discrepancy between crack cocaine um, and power cocaine. However, there's not really been a lot of movement when it comes to looking at uh, drug reform. So going back and looking at the differences between Trying to correct the discrepancy between power cocaine and crack cocaine, we haven't really seen a lot of movement on that legislation. And this is due in part to Senator Grassley was really looking forward um, to looking at decreasing the discrepancies from 18 to one instead of 100 to one. So we're we're definitely still um, reinforcing that idea that crack cocaine is not the same as power cocaine, and that's still lingering um, in the Senate as of right now. And then. More recently, Biden had passed pardons for um, those who have been, who are who are serving time as of right now in federal prison for simple possession of marijuana. Now, although Biden does support the idea of not having um, individuals with these types of charges within the jail, he still does not agree with legalizing on the federal level marijuana. And after all, These pardons really didn't do much for those who are still in prison. Not one person was set free, just given the fact that it is for simple possession of marijuana. So as of right now, it looks as though there hasn't been a lot of movement when it comes to drug reform. And I think, again, that's because Biden is really sticking with his guns when it comes to being tough on crime, specifically being tough on drugs
2: finesse moreno rivera joining us let's let's dig into that a little bit because if i'm going to criticize the president for being performative and buzzwordy i need to lay out what is performative and buzzwordy right i'm good with the pardons i'm okay with wiping people's records for simple possession charges because that's that has economic impact that has you know benefit impact to their families that gets them back into society properly i'm good with all that in theory where the criticism of that is Is what was its actual effect, right? So we like the policy, but what was its actual effect? By far, the majority of people that would be benefited from that is more at the state level than the federal level. That was one thing. Uh, Federal pardons, of course, is a very small subsection of this. Like you said, nobody actually got out of prison for this, but they did. You know, this does affect the lives of the people involved. We are seeing some states take some movement to this area. Is there any value in the performative of it? It's like, well, the president did it so some of these states can start doing it. We've already seen some movements in the states. A couple states have gone much further than this. Is there value in that or does this hinder it? What do you think going forward as far as it comes to the simple possession of marijuana, these sites of things? That There's a lot of polling that people support it, but you still got to get it in the black and white of the law somewhere.
5: Right. So. You are right in that the the pardons do help those who are already who already served their time, who are just looking to get you know a job, get back on their feet, support their families, you know, even have housing. But overall, Biden's push didn't really do anything because you know, as you know, there are plenty of states who have already passed laws for legalization of marijuana, um, and so simple possession just you don't really see that on someone's record or sticking with them. So. It was just to me. It was more of a push to really gain traction with our younger voters because he did pass that shortly before the midterm elections began. Um, and also, you know, given the fact that you know presidents have given pardons all the way back to Theodore Roosevelt, so this isn't anything new where presidents are you know issuing pardons specifically. Also, when looking at um, with drug drug possession or even even type of drug charge. So I just found that it was a really just low hanging fruit um, that he utilized in order to really, again, just gain some type of, uh, traction when it comes to uh, midterm elections.
2: Yeah. Finesse Moreno Rivera, join us. You mentioned um, crack cocaine. Of course, that was the big buzzword when they did the 94 crime bill. Another Joe Biden special. That was his signature thing for decades. Um now the thing is more about fentanyl. You were also writing about this. We'll link to your article on this in the counterpunch when you bring it up there. People are really concerned about the fentanyl. And they should be. This is dangerous stuff. This is stuff even hardcore drug users, it's it's deadly. Um, it's a new challenge that we haven't really found. And now we're getting reports there's actually variants of this that, you know, even the, the anti-doping drugs aren't effective with this. This stuff really, really scares people. How do we legislate and regulate this fentanyl crisis right now so that we don't end up doing what we did with crack cocaine and cocaine for the last 40 years where we have it on the books wrong? The terminology ain't right. The incarceration ends up becoming a problem with it. Do you see what I'm saying? Shouldn't we be proactive and learn the lessons from the 94 crime bill and the crack cocaine era of the 80s and put it towards this fentanyl thing and get a handle on this now so that we don't create a whole nother generation of drug enforcement mess?
5: Yes, you're absolutely correct. But unfortunately, we are headed down the same road as of right now. Um, You know, we have stuck with the rescheduling of fentanyl as schedule one, which we all know um, means that the government has deemed it to be highly addictive, which fentanyl is. But this also means that there hasn't been found to be any medicinal um, advantages of being able to study this and see what can help. And going back to your point, um, when you were talking about Narcan, I think Andrew you had just mentioned that you know some of these fentanyl-like substances have been found to be able to counteract overdoses for those who are, for example, using a benzo dope, which is fentanyl mixed with uh, benzos. So you know, and unfortunately, what we're seeing is due to the scheduling of fentanyl being Schedule One. We're seeing a lot of our um, our drug dealers on the streets who are going to jail. Well, who are they? They are usually minorities. They are marginalized um, individuals within our communities. So I'm not trying to say that they shouldn't, you know, serve time or you know, see any consequences. But as of right now, there's not enough that's being done, and you know, not enough awareness that's being done as well when it comes to fentanyl. What we're doing is we're doing the same thing same exact thing we we did with crack cocaine and powder cocaine. Um, So we have a lot to do when it comes to fentanyl and also understanding it, but, you know, also trying to ring in these um, cartels as well. We all know that we had this conversation dating back to Trump administration with China saying, you know, Hey, please get your fentanyl products under control, but obviously that's not working either. And now, you know, to China, and makes its way down to Mexico through the Mexican cartels, um, and that's just been that's been the way, I guess, because of the drug uh, scene, if you will, for the U.S. for a while. That a lot of these drugs are coming from Mexico. So, that being said, you know, I think that legislation-wise, we should be looking at being more proactive um, and being out on the street with individuals, having more boots on the ground, and just having more. Creative measures when it comes to saving people's lives and being where they are.
2: And that's Marino Rivera. You just talked about it. Part of the problem when we're dealing with drugs is there's no way to disentangle it from everything else. There's the inherent problems in the criminal justice system. There's an addiction part to it, of course, which is complicated even under the best of circumstances dealing with people that have an addiction problem. Then you start talking about international politics. Then you start talking about Mexico. Now you got to deal with the immigration thing, which gets lumped into it, which is mostly unfairly because most of this stuff actually comes through legitimate ports of entry by contraband, not by illegal immigration. But all these things start winding up in a ball. What's the best way to talk about it in a productive way then to cut through that and start pulling some strings out where we can actually do it? Is it taking the human face of it? Is it the policy face of it? Is it the criminal aspect of it? because everybody seems to just want to take one piece or the other and we don't get the full picture on and We don't get anywhere. How do we start cutting through the noise on this, on how we're discussing it in media and social media and the news media?
5: I think you make a great point because it needs a human face. You know, quite often it's so easy for us to turn on the television and hear about individuals who are abusing drugs and just think that, well, that's not me. That can never be me. I don't know anyone util- utilizing drugs. I don't. So, You know, and I I think that says a lot because if you don't, you're not associated with anyone or if you don't utilize drugs, which I'm hoping that your listeners, some of them do, especially with fentanyl, then you're not really having your boots on the ground and understanding the problem in itself. Like just really getting to the heart of the problem, you know, looking at your users, looking at your dealers and just getting a real, a really good grasp on all these moving parts, right? So I think that it's going to take a lot of humanizing when it comes to drug addiction to really understand what's going on. But then also there needs to be a lot more understanding when it comes to law enforcement within their communities.
2: Yeah, Finesse Moreno Rivera. This is the problem right here, though. We To bring up the 94 crime bill again, this is my opinion. You can go look it up on YouTube. Look at what then Senator Joe Biden said. Look at what Bill Clinton, who was president at the time, said. Look at what the Republican leadership in the House and the Senate said. This isn't even a political thing. Just look at the language they used at the crime bill back in 94 at this stuff. It's all these drugs make people subhuman. They make them dangerous. These are animal. I mean, this stuff's all out there. They dehumanize these folks, and it scares people. We're doing it again because that sells politically. You scare people. You let people think that they're in danger because of the drugs, and they are a problem. But how do we deal with that portion of it? Because that's not going to go away because it's good politics to scare people into action and to do things. That's just human nature and the fact of it. At the same time, yes, this causes dangerous things and it causes violent crimes. But at the same time, it's a people problem that has a people answer to it. Otherwise, you just end up perpetuating the problem. I don't have a good answer for that, but I know we need to talk about it that way to get to whatever the answer is going to be. Am I wrong there?
5: No, you're not. But I think, you know, going back to how can we change that mindset, I think we could just even start with evidence-based practices. And just really having scientists and counselors and psychologists, uh, policymakers, uh, you know, individuals of the communities being on these types of boards, you know, consulting um, our politicians about, hey, this is what we need. This is what's going on. um, Instead of pushing rhetoric and instead of pushing their own agenda. But You know, that's what our politics are here in the U.S.
2: Yeah. And but the thing about it is, yes, these people are criminals and they do bad, violent things. But those don't happen in a vacuum. Those are little shockwave bombs in families and communities, especially, you know, you're talking about the opioid crisis and fentanyl. A lot of that's worse in rural areas. So you talk about one family being destroyed. Well, if you're in a small town, four or five families that have this issue, you're talking about a major impact. These things have ripple effects. It overruns the healthcare system. It overruns the judiciary system. It overruns the civic function system. How do we get folks to understand that no, this is not something where you just remove the bad people from society? You have to actually get these people back functioning in society, not just for them, but for their families and their communities as well. There's bomb radiuses when these things go off, like addiction, like crime, like drug use. I don't think we talk about it in that manner enough instead of just the fear mongering like, oh, well, it's violent crime. Let's just make it go away so we get the votes. No, because you're not going to solve the problem.
5: Right. And, you know, I whenever you start talking about bombs and waves, because it can take out a whole community, I immediately thought about the Hulu show Dote because it started out in a very small community. That was a great, 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 great uh, TV show. But, you know unfortunately that was that was the result of money and greed and when you think about it you know it takes a lot for our voices to be heard within communities it takes a lot for our voices to be heard within cities but the only way that our voices can be heard too and i hate to you know sound like a broken record with, about this but it is to vote it is to know you know who your senators are who your representatives are you know who's actually supporting your community who's right. not you know supporting your community so again I think it's really important that, you know, we make sure that we are putting the right people in the offices who know their communities, who know their cities and actually care about the people within them.
2: You also have a piece out in uh, USA Today talking about policing, traffic stops, police violence. I I just want to cut through the noise and get to the base of this. We have a base alloy for some of the problems in policing in America. And that base alloy that folks don't want to talk about is policing is now big business and policing is revenue. And policing is you're not just protecting and serving, but you're also expected to bring in income to your municipality and city that drives traffic stops, that drives interactions with the public that they otherwise would not be having, that puts people on edge, and we've got the data and the science now that's going to increase incidences of police violence against the civilian population, good, bad, justified, unjustified, whatever. It just is statistically that's going to happen. Is there any way to break out of the cycle of for-profit policing that is driving some of this? And I know a lot of people are going to get mad and say, oh, that's really harsh, but no, the fine system in the court system, the the fine system in the policing, this is a problem, and it's driving a lot of the other problems. And folks just are not talking about it correctly.
5: Exactly, you know, and I, you know, I'm very very happy about the response from this piece. I've gotten a lot of, uh, you know, people reaching out to me. Some being from organizations such as UN5O. Uh, the founder of BJ Council reached out to me because she actually works with. Um, It gives trainings to the community as well as police officers when it comes to how to interact with one another. I've also had um, someone reach out to me from the Best Highway Safety Practices in Nevada to speak with me as well. So, you know, at the end of the day, this is not about defunding police. So I just want to put that out there right now. What this article is saying is we're not trying to defund the police. What we're trying to do is save lives and make it more safe for police officers as well as citizens. Because you have to think about it. Whenever you're being pulled over by an officer, they don't know you. They may not know you're an outstanding citizen. They may not know that, you know, you have a loving family and support. It's really important that we make sure that we're keeping the idea in our heads that we need a foundation of trust between the motorists as well as the police officer. And as of right now, given the climate, we're not seeing that.
2: From Ness Moreno Rivera, I find back the blue and I find defund the police to be two sides of the same coin of the same problem. You can't lump it all together. If you support police, which I do, we need good police, you have to hold them accountable. You also have to give them achievable goals and tools to do their job properly. And I find both of those slogans defeat that purpose. I want them to have attainable goals, protecting and serving the community. I want them to have the tools to do that. But then I think we should also hold them accountable that they do that. How do we turn down the noise from those two polar extremes? Because that drives the narrative and then nothing gets done. And frankly, the police get stuck in the middle, to be fair to them, Um, and they get in an impossible position. How do we change that narrative and that discussion? Because, look, policing does require funding. We were talking about it a little bit. Let's be adults here. It does require funding, but we want it to go to certain things like properly trained police, vetting good police, getting more good people into the police force. Weeding out the bad folks means you got to have more good folks. How do we talk about that in a more productive way, do you think? Because you've seen the same data.
5: Again, it's humanizing. Yes, funding is very, very important for the police officers, but it shouldn't come at the cost of us motorists, um, especially when looking at quotas. You know, quotas can definitely make police officers, you know, make traffic stops that are unnecessary, and thus making individuals and themselves more prone to potential violent acts that wouldn't be there in the first place. And again, because given the climate between police and the public right now, there really isn't that foundation of respect and understanding, and at the end of the day, quotas are not a good system for having to collect funding.
2: Uh, Finesse Moreno-Rivera, the other part of this, we talked before about how these things get really tentacly and go into cross streams and this sort of thing. When you start dealing with policing, there's no way to get around things like class and race. We don't seem to be able to have a good way of talking about things like class and race generally, but then when you start putting criminality around it, it gets really bad trying to talk about it. What do we do with this? I don't know. I look, I work hard trying to do it and I still can't figure out how to do it sometimes. People smarter than me have wrote, you know, voluminous books. People teach whole courses on this stuff. How do we talk about the fact that look, we just need to be adults? You police rurally differently. You have to police inner cities differently. You have to police suburbs differently. And all those different classes and races and demographics and groups of people react differently. We seem to want to just act like policing is this one size fits all, and it's not. And it seems like we've lost this community aspect to policing. And frankly, we've lost this community aspect to the police work for us as a community. Where do we start getting that back? Some that old protect and serve thing I know it's almost a you know kind of a joking Andy Griffith thing, but look, we used to call them peace officers for a reason, they kept the peace. I feel like we've lost that with our perception and with the main mission of the police force in too many cases.
5: Yeah, racial profiling is it's out there and we all know it is. It's a human nature problem.
2: People push back against the buzzword on it. And I understand you can go too far with it. It's just grained into your human nature. You're fighting a human nature problem and a human failing. So you have to acknowledge that, yes, this is an issue. Now, there's degrees to it, obviously, but it's a human nature problem. So it's silly to act like it's not existing. Right.
5: Right, no, because no one wants to be seen in a bad light. But you know, given all those circumstances, that's the reason why I'm happy that there are some states that have taken back control in trying to really balance out the officers' natural bias. We all have natural bias or perceptions. really is taking out their the uh, subjectivity of it all. So, you know, places such as Philadelphia, Los Angeles, um, they have you know already enacted legislation to um, decrease the amount of unnecessary stops for minimal um, charges, such as for taillights being out. There's also been Chicago, who has even enacted legislation looking at foot pursuits. um, And also not only that, but car pursuits. And Washington as well. Now, that's not to say, I know a lot of people say, well, you know, this could have backlash because it does. For example, I know that Washington had mentioned once they had enacted their new legislation for um, giving up on minor uh, traffic stops for minor violations, they saw an uptick of individuals who just would not pull over. They would not pull over. And so there was this backlash of, well, you know, they're criminals, they're getting away, they should be stopped. But a caveat should be that I don't think that it's okay for just a car to, you know, commence a chase with a police officer whatsoever. But that officer, like you said, is here to protect and serve the community. And he needs to, he or she needs to keep that in mind. So really, you know, the only time that uh, a speed chase or any type of chase should be um, pursued would be under you know, extreme circumstances, such as violent crimes, such as a murder, or a rape, or a kidnapping. So I would really like to think that we're kind of coming a little bit further, especially when you're looking at states, about 20 states, over 20 states, who've also um, gotten rid of their quotas for police officers, just to try to make it, you know, safer for the motorists, as well as um, officers themselves. But, you know, overall, I think that again, the officers and motorists need to keep in mind about where they're coming from um, whenever, they're, whenever they are being stopped. And like you said, you know, there's different standards for whether you're rural or you're inner, but it's important for everyone to still be on some, some type of, you know, same page. I actually went out to lunch with a friend not too long ago. She's a professor and worked at a, as an analyst with me. And I said, you know, what do you do when you get pulled over? And she said, oh, I was taught just to take my keys out of the ignition, put them on the dashboard, keep both my hands on the, on the wheel. And I thought to myself, I've never done that before in my entire life. And, and something so small like that can be a trigger between the motorist as well as an officer. So, you know, at some point we need to, we need to just get on the same page and motorists definitely need to start learning um, their rights um, and also the law as well.
2: Yeah. Vanessa Marina Rivera, you just talked about it. So let's just do this to kind of wrap up this conversation of what's some low hanging fruit. We talked about that policy wise, but what's some low hanging fruit we can do to start making this stuff better? Is it better awareness? Like I do. I, I, I've i got driving age children. I tell them all the time, like, look, cop comes up, both hands on the wheel and keep them there unless they tell you to do anything else. And when you go do something else, tell them what you're doing. Like if you go to reach for them, like I'm going to go reach for this. Just simple stuff. Well, what's some of the things we can do to kind of turn this down? Because, look, this is give and take. The police have to do some reforms. The public needs to do some reforming, too. What's some of the real easy stuff? Is it going to a community police board meeting or whatever your uh, area might have? Is it better educating yourself? Is it meeting with your police? Is it talking to your politicians? Give us something You know, not easy, but attainable goals that folks can work on here instead of us just yelling at each other about it on social media.
5: The easiest obtainable goal that I've thought of, because I remember, well, I would like to think that I remember, you know, whenever I went to driving school to get my permit, I do not recall not one portion of that class, however long it was, including what to do when stop by uh, officer or your rights when being stopped by an officer. I think that that's very important, that isn't easy. That is an easy pamphlet that can be handed out You know, as soon as you have your young drivers out there on the road, just, just hand it out. Easy, very easy for them to know what to do so everyone is on the same page as motorists. It's also very easy for an officer just, just to have standardization in some way as well, just to say, hi, you know, how are you doing? You're speeding. My camera is on or the dash cam is on. You know, in my article, I state that over 70% of the cases, there is no, there is no camera, a body-worn camera on or dash cam on. That's dangerous for not only the motorist, but also the officer himself. So I think it's really important that, you know, the officer is, you know, showing some type of decorum, showing his professionalism as soon as he walks up to the door. Uh, uh, my personal experience, unfortunately, you know, I have never met a Virginia state trooper that wasn't trained exactly the same. I, every single time, which I haven't been pulled over that many times in Virginia, but I can, you can definitely tell that they're trained exactly the same way and treat everyone exactly the same way. And I've talked to other individuals as well about the Virginia uh, state troopers, um, too. So, you know, these are just small things that can, you know, help. And the officers need to be trained as well when it comes to the motorists. Um, I found it to be disturbing that, you know, in the article that I wrote that, you know, like a little over half of the motorists were, you know, under the influence of drugs, alcohol, uh, or or, were clearly having a mental health issue at the time of being pulled over. And that. You know really does make it the situation even dicier as well. So, you know, I think that at the very least, officers need to be trained more when it comes to mental illnesses, those who are intoxicated or on drugs. And, you know, for those individuals who are saying, Well, that's good, that's a good thing they got pulled over. Yes, absolutely, I absolutely agree. Um, but again, if they're being pulled over, then you know, different measures need to be taken for this individual and be considered when, you know, making sure everyone is safe.
2: Yeah. Finesse Moreno Rivera. She's a criminal uh, forensic psychologist and criminologist. She's got all those fancy titles, but she does such great work on this stuff. We've got two different pieces we're working off of. We're going to link to both of them, one in Counterpunch, one in USA Today. And yes, we're going to make you a regular because you're really, really sharp on this <laughs> stuff and we really appreciate your time. But until we get you back, my friend, Let folks know where they can keep up with you, how they can follow you and what you got going on until we see on her again.
5: Absolutely. So I can be found on Twitter at Finesse Marino and as well as on my LinkedIn, uh, Finesse Marino Rivera. And hopefully my next piece will be coming out soon
2: yep she's another of our great young voices contributors really sharp make sure you're reading all her stuff good fresh insight and perspective on this look she's worked with the fbi dc police all kinds of folks she knows what she's talking about we're going to keep asking her questions and she'll explain it so well even i understand it so finesse thank you so much for the time my friend really appreciate you thanks andrew yes ma'am welcome back to Hurtel. Okay, he's back. Good friend of the program, Benjamin Hyenian, another one of our great Young Voices contributors. Been doing a lot of writing all over the place. We're going to talk a little third parties with him. How are you, sir? Good to see you again, my friend. I'm doing well. It's good to see you, too. Always, always happy to be here. Yeah, glad to have you back. Uh, we actually talked about this a couple weeks ago, and sure enough, just like clockwork, anytime we have an election, as soon as that election's over, everybody starts talking third parties again, so you got to piece out in uh, insider. Let, let's let's hash this out for a second. Let's start historically, though. there have been third parties that have had some success in the history of the United States. You touch on it in your piece. The thing about it is, these third parties usually pop up because of a specific issue that brings people into them. The problem with that is as soon as that issue dissipates, so does that third party. That's the history of it. So I think we need to start there because anytime somebody starts talking about, oh, we need a third party or oh, we have a duopoly or whatever, well, yeah, but you have to have some kind of a force to knock you out of that. I don't really see one other than just general frustration. That ain't going to get it done.
6: Oh, I I agree with that sentiment fully. I mean, the American people keep you know responding in poll settings um, that they desire a third party to be present. We know a plurality of Americans identifies independence however you know if we look deeper into the data most of those independents do consistently vote um one way or the other you know they either lean heavily democrat or lean heavily republican and so general frustration with the duopoly certainly is not enough um to elevate a third party into you know a competitive landscape but um which i'm sure we'll get into i think there's plenty of of other things that can be done to at least give better access to third parties, to give them you know, a better chance to compete. And in addition to that, to expand the number of choices in the American psyche.
2: Yeah, Benjamin I am joining us. You just touched on it. So let's just talk about it. Right now, a third party on a national level, let's say just president, because that's one everybody thinks about. If you're going to be a third party national candidate for president, there is a huge uh, logistical and infrastructure problem to doing that. You have to individually get on the ballot in all 50 states, plus the territories, for that matter. That involves a lot of stuff. There are signature requirements. There are various requirements to get into. And every state's different because some states have open primaries. Some states have closed primaries. So, you know, I'm I'm one of those unaffiliated voters. So when I go to a primary, I have to ask for one ballot or the other. You know, that sort of stuff. That's part of the dynamic that a third party or an independent run always faces. Changing that would take a lot of legislation and a lot of change. I think that's where the polling and the facts on the ground hit, because I don't think there's a big appetite for people to really grind out and do that.
6: No, and especially there's not, you know, a big appetite from current political leaders to want to help give greater access to third parties you know if I'm a Democrat or if I'm a Republican you know in um, legislatures, what incentive do I have to to make elections more competitive against me That's one thing Democrats and Republicans can consistently agree on is that third party access is not a great thing um, for either of them. so there's an issue that they can come together on And so there is a logistical, nightmare especially in some states you know for example um, I linked to this in the article that I just wrote that you know in Tennessee it's extremely hard to get on the ballot as a third party you know in order to become a recognized minority party in Tennessee a petition must be submitted um, and that petition needs the signatures of registered voters equal to at least two and a half percent of the total number of votes, in the last gubernatorial race and so democrats and republicans in that state on the other hand only need 25 signatures each um, to get you know their candidates on the ballot in that state and so there are really restrictive laws out there that do hamper minority party access and i think um, if that is going to change this needs to become a more important issue for enough people um, and whether or not that's feasible, we will see, you know, like you said, frustration is not enough to push, you know, this desire for third parties over the top and into um, the reality of our political landscape. But it is a start. And so it needs, in my opinion, to be capitalized on um, and people ought to care more about, you know, third party access, because why would we continue to go to the ballot? box every year look at two options that we do not feel good about um, continue pulling the lever continue seeing that things are going in the wrong direction and just kind of throw our hands up and say oh well you know these are the only two options it's just how things work that's not something that i'm able to just sit back and accept
2: Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on The Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. If you feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse, this is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. Yeah, Benjamin Iannian, you bring up another point about voting here. Uh, Ranked choice voting, which on paper deals with some of these issues about letting other candidates and other parties deal with. The only problem is we got some data now. Alaska just did this, and it was an absolute cluster. Uh, The Alaska ranked choice voting did not go well. It was a mess. Other states have messed with uh, versions of ranked choice voting. You know, California has their top two system. Other states are going to start playing around with this what's the path forward on this? Like, And look, to be fair, to ranked choice voting, you know, it's only as good as it's implemented. So you can have a great idea and badly implement it. So I don't want to just say the idea is bad, but so far it's not working great. How could that change some of this if we just do a different way of voting that would maybe give some more access that way without rehashing the entire system?
6: Well, yeah, so I mean... What I would say about ranked choice voting: We actually have had ranked choice voting elections in plenty of other states, and granted, in smaller, you know, local elections, California actually did have um, a few cities have elections with ranked choice voting, and the you know data came back that you know almost every ballot that was cast was was valid, and you know the vast majority of individuals who took part. In those elections came out and said that, you know, they were simple and easy to understand. The process was Um, if we actually look at exit polling from ranked choice voting, um, the majority of people who take part in them say that they are simple um, and easy to understand that that could just be a status quo bias. You know, people who do ranked choice voting, they like it because it's what they just did. People who do other forms of election, they say they like it because it's the type of election they just um, took part in. So there could just be a status quo bias there. But I don't think ranked choice voting um, is as much of a mess. I mean, in in 2022 in Alaska, as you mentioned, you know, eight and a half out of 10 voters reported that ranked choice voting was simple um, and easy for them to understand. I know the wall street journal um, their op-ed section wrote a long article about how much of a mess they felt the alaska election was um, and i do think that they had some valid critiques but at the end of the day i don't see um, our current system as allowing the american voter or incentivizing them to become more informed about other options so if i know the democrat or the republican is going to win um, I might feel as though my vote for a third party or an independent is merely just a spoiler vote. Um, I don't think that that is true, but it at, but ranked choice voting would at least eliminate um, this idea that votes are meant to just be spoilers if they're not for one of the top two parties. Um, so I think that the American public would at least be able to feel okay about looking at independence, about looking at third party candidates and even placing them as their first choice without fearing that their vote is going to place their least favorite candidate in Washington, D.C.
2: Yeah, Benjamin ain't joining us. This gets to the old, and you ended your piece talking about the lesser two evils nonsense. Look, I just did a rant on this the other day. Like, look, when I look at my ballot, if I don't have anybody that's qualified for the role, I'm not voting for them anymore. I'm just not going to do it anymore because that's me putting my name on it and I'm not doing it. Sorry, y'all y'all justify it however you want to. I'm not doing it anymore. I really wonder if that means there's just certain offices. I'll never get a vote for anybody ever again because there ain't nobody good voting for it, but so be it. There's a lot of people that feel that way. They're just tired of the lesser of two evils mess. The obvious choice of that is to get more options in there, but it's not that simple. We can rant about the duopoly, though, but what's the path forward for this? Is it going to take, like we've seen historically, like we started with, some major issue where a third party rises up around that major issue? Is it going to be just these two parties continually consolidating the power we're seeing now where President Biden's going to be tinkering around with the primary schedule to make sure it goes the way he wants it? I don't see a third party rising anytime soon. Is that too negative, do you think, or do you agree with that? Um, I think, being
6: realistic, um, anytime soon, you're probably right. I don't think we have, honestly, a great choice for a third party right now, which is unfortunate because I feel as though some of the parties out there are squandering this great opportunity. Um, The Libertarian Party um, has had some new leadership come into power over the last couple of years. And um, it feels to me that, you know, their party has become increasingly um, more of a mess. Um, I do personally um, hold, you know, libertarian ideals, you know, their classical liberal caucuses, you know, those individuals are the ones I tend to agree with on public policy issues. Um, but the leadership of the party seems to have gone a little bit off the rails and their messaging um, is not good. And so I think, for example, they're squandering an opportunity to gain more support in Arizona. They had a candidate that was pulling um, over five or six percent and then dropped out and endorsed Blake Masters. I don't think that, you know, that's good. You know, they could have shown on a ballot that, hey, look, we, we can increase our you know voter share. Um, instead, their candidate um, opted not to do that and endorsed a Republican. You have Andrew Yang, who's trying to start the forward party. It seems like he's looking for more of a gap in the market um his type of approach is well the there's a majority on a lot of issues so whatever the majority holds that's the position our party is going to adopt it's a really odd way it feels more like a business trying to cater to consumers um from that sense so There's not a lot of great options for third parties right now. So one thing we do need is third parties to kind of get their act together. Um, But on top of that is the American psyche needs to have the opportunity and the freedom to be able to look at other parties. And if we as voters were able to care more and be able to give them more time of day because of a different system, then I think third parties might be a little bit more responsive um, to you know, the voters that they could potentially um, swing to their side to become more competitive in elections. The issue is with our current voting system and the restrictive laws against third parties, I don't think we're anywhere near a third party having a chance because I think Americans rightfully look at the election and go, yeah, I mean, if I vote for them, there's no way they win anyway. Um, Granted, if you vote for one of the top, One of the two parties, Republicans or Democrats, the odds that you break a tie are so low. So, I mean, either way, how much does it really matter in this system? I'm not sure. Um, But I do understand the point that if you vote for a third party, they're probably not going to win anyway. So, that's why I think we need structural changes. And how that happens, it's probably going to have to come from enough people caring about this issue and um, really advocating for institutional change because people don't come together we're not going to see it
2: no i don't think they will benjamin ianian uh always enjoy talking about this stuff where can they find the piece we're going to link to it as well and where can folks keep up with you until we get you back on Hertel again my friend
6: yeah the piece i just wrote you can find on inside sources it's actually a, a syndication um publication so it will be in other newspapers as well um and you can find me on twitter at benjamin ianian andrew it's always good talking to you
2: yeah appreciate you coming on here we don't need a third party to have you back buddy always appreciate you we'll be talking again soon my friend another one of our great young voices contributors talk soon buddy <laughs> ah welcome back to Hertel. one of our favorites gabriella hoffman We're going to consider the lobster. See what I did there. No butter involved, though, because this is TV and radio. How are you, my friend? Good to see you again. Good
7: to see you, Andrew. I'm looking forward to seeing you in D.C. this week and formally connect. And really happy to talk to you about this lobster situation, because even if you don't live in Maine, this will affect you one way or another, whether you consume lobsters or you're sympathetic with the plight of these hardworking individuals.
2: Yep, yeah, I'm uh, going to be at the young voices thing where I'm going to lose to some very talented people for an oh. award I'm up for. Uh, th- you hit it exactly right. I think fishing conservation is a success story when it's done right. This is a known formula. We can go back to the nineties when they started doing this. If you successfully conserve fisheries, The fishermen make more money. There's more product. The fishing grounds are healthier. The fish populations are healthier. The environment's taken care of because all of this gets regulated and oversaw by the government. So everybody's doing things the right way. This should be a success story. Why are we still banging our head about what is and isn't fishing conservation in the United States and America?
7: I think it's attributed to the fact that we're still in terms of environmental philosophy, there's still this inclination, especially among people on the center left to promote preservation under the guise of conservation. And when you do this, you're pitting different conservation stakeholders against one another. So you're essentially pitting, in this case, Maine lobstermen who are great stewards, generally speaking, of the lobster that they harvest and that they tend to. It's a 150-year industry, so they have to be, against the endangered North Atlantic right whale, which is in a very perilous situation. There's no bones about that, of course. There's only maybe under 350 individuals left. These whales are very protected. They have the strictest Endangered Species Act protection and Marine Mammal uh, Protection Act kind of barriers and, and labels on them. So they're very highly regulated. That's another conversation. I wish people would have a conversation about that. It doesn't mean you take the whales, but it. we have to look into seeing what is actually failing the whale. Is it lobstermen or is it the government? what's really at the odds here. But they love to hinge it on the lobstermen. So I think over the course of the last several decades, there's been a battle of gear entanglements and whether main lobstermen should update their, let's say, equipment to cause fewer entanglements and fewer, uh, fewer rather, whale-human conflicts. So the main lobster industry, by all accounts, has made accommodations. They've improved their gear. They've tried to reduce their footprint, tried to reduce entanglements with whales and their slight change of hand or their rather changing of techniques has led to fewer conflicts. And in the last 20 some odd years, they haven't been attributed to the demise of the whale. There's been no known recorded conflicts that can go back to Maine lobstermen because regulations would make it so uh, and under the Endangered Species Act, there's uh, the way that Fisheries are regulated when you're involving, let's say, lobster, even though lobster is not endangered. But if it's relating to, like, the right whale, how do these uh, fisheries related industries kind of make sure that they're not encroaching on these endangered animals? So they have to go through various different hoops and barriers and follow regulations stemming from wildlife law to environmental law to be able to exist as an industry. And today, even with all the attacks, her- rather lobbied at these um, or volleyed at these industries, particularly, um, I think, what is it? The Biden administration is targeting 10 fisheries in particular, including the Maine lobster. And and they're not the only one, but the Maine lobster gets the most scrutiny. And they say that they have to reduce their risk reduction by 98%. Um, The most recent rule change says by 90%, but a figure that a lot of the industry players have been using is 98%. But 90% is what one of the most recent rules about the Atlantic whale plan um, stipulated there. And so these lobstermen have made all accommodations. They've updated their gear. They've followed regulations, even at the expense of their livelihoods. They've seen years probably buoyed from very prosperous years to very not so prosperous years. And their livelihoods have hinged on how many regulations they are subjected to. And because they've made accommodations, they're willing to go along where it's reasonable, of course. But when these demands to reduce reduce risk by 98%. It's it's untenable, it's unrealistic for them to be able to achieve this. It's asking a lot of them. They've already gone through so much to reduce conflicts. There's no evidence of them contributing to the whale's demise. They're avoiding the whale and having conflicts with it. And if they, if they understand, like any other conservationist, if they are imperiling this whale, which is in a very dire situation as a species, as a whole, everyone recognizes that. But if they were to make the whales plight even worse, they wouldn't exist as an industry under the Endangered Species Act and other environmental laws. They would already have been regulated out of existence. So they know that they can coexist and they want to coexist with the whale. But they've also been pointing to different evidence and we can go more into detail that they're not directly entangling with the whale whatsoever. Migration wise, the whales are not necessarily feeding in the Gulf of Maine much anymore And so even when, let's say, um, so yes, there's Biden regulation, which we can go more into. There there are several Commerce Department policies, this risk reduction, and then there's also a biological opinion, which also kind of enhances this risk reduction uh, demand or kind of regulation that they want to impose. And then you have, because of kind of nods from the federal government, different special interest groups or consumer interest groups, as they like to call themselves, but I think of them as special interests, um, different big box stores and I would say food delivery services like HelloFresh, Blue Apron, and Whole Foods took a nod from the Monterey Bay Aquarium which has nothing to do with red lobster. They don't study red lobster. It's on a different coast of course and then they put out this red list on their seafood watch list that says you can't eat lobster even though the fishery is okay but this fishery in particular is known to interfere and be endangering this will and again no evidence of that. So that creates a lot of problems. It defames the industry, it defames the character of these hardworking men and women who go through grueling lengths to be able to harvest lobster. And they're responsible for 82% of the U.S. lobster catch, a very big portion. And people who love their lobster may bite the hand that feeds them if they go along with wanting to regulate them. And then in addition to this red listing of lobster, another thing came down from a UK-based nonprofit called the Marine Stewardship Council, They revoked the Gulf of Maine certificate saying that, again, the fishery is not sustainable. Lobstermen are endangering the whale. And then they concluded and and conceded rather that there's actually no evidence of lobstermen hurting the whale, but they still went through with revoking their certificate. So again, um, defaming the industry, misrepresenting their work, blaming them for the whale's plight. But there are other... Causes of this whale's demise, and it's not from the lobstermen. So it's it's a typical battle. We're now seeing it play offshore. We see these battles take place onshore with kind of predators like bears and wolves, but it also similarly is found offshore in situations like commercial fishing, whether it is harvesting blue tuna or main lobsterman in this main lobster in this instance. So it's it's not a new battle, it's just one that's been brought to the forefront more. And there's a lot to unpack from it because people just thought, okay, it was just these companies going woke, but they were getting nods from the federal government in a sense. And they've all kind of been these, these special interest groups who triggered these lawsuits, then had federal lawmaking kind of reflect their lawsuits. And then it goes to these consumer groups who have big platforms and big microphones, and then they're misleading the public about whether or not lobster is safe to consume. Because of their alleged misgivings and alleged wrongdoing in this situation of the whale. But many scientists and experts have come out against attacking lobstermen, and the lobstermen have been defending themselves. Those poor people, they've had to, they're they're at risk of losing, you know, financial supports. So the local banks and, and mainers have been coming to the support of these individuals. Various different credit unions and banks have been giving them large non- denominations of money to fight these lawsuits to help support them because this employs 4500 people indirectly directly it's a 1.4 billion dollar industry that's at risk of going away it's not so much the monetary contributions they make but also just the history in this country when we lose industries like this that have been there for a long time that have a culture and a kind of creative bent to it and and has a purpose too It's it's a purposeful industry it's supplying catch to people people love Maine lobster Maine lobster is delicious so to see something like that, a longstanding industry be under attack and potentially on the threat of going extinct, it should worry and, and cause pause for a lot of people, whether or not you live in Maine. So that's kind of the runaround of, of the situation, an, an old problem with a new, fresh set kind of eyes and then ears.
2: A lot of these same players, Gabriella Hoffman joining us. We've seen them act differently, though. You talked about them bowing to special interests. Same groups, NOAA, uh, National Marine Fisheries Service. Same area, New England, right? Back in the 90s, it was not lobsters. It was New England scallops. And they worked with the groceries, They had to shut the fisheries down for a little bit. That's in the 90s. By 2001, it was fully rebuilt within about a five-year period, a little less than. It's now one of the most profitable fisheries in the entire world, especially with scallops. Same area, same players, same everything. Look, we know this stuff works if you do it right. How do we get the special interests and the politics and what's good for the environment and the fisheries and good for the workers who depend on these industries? And you already just mentioned it. This is a core food group Thing I know people think lobsters. Oh, well, that's a high end food. Yeah, but that goes through, you know, distribution centers Mm -hmm. that goes to restaurants that goes to banqueting things that goes to the White House for the state dinner with France for 200 main lobsters. You know that and we're joking about a little bit, but that's a supply chain. And we've already been learning the hard way that supply chains are important. There's no excuse that what we have done before in the same areas with a similar situation with a similar crustacean works why? My same question again, why are we banging our head on the table trying to figure out something so simple? And I know the answer is politics, environmentalism. Why can't we just understand that good conservation is always good environmentalism, but environmentalism isn't always good conservation for both businesses and for the environment at the same time?
7: Then these preservationists would not be raking in a lot of money (laughs) as they do creating an alarm over a perceived problem, but an easily debunkable perceived problem. It's it's their bottom line. You see these people sue and sue and sue, and their their evidence is being challenged now, or their claims rather, being challenged by scientists, other reputable sources, because people are coming out of the world, and, and even NOAA fishery scientists. I had um kind of done some more research, and I lightly alluded to it in a recent town hall column expounding on this, but there are several NOAA fishery scientists who've said from recent years and more recently that you can't, hinge the blame on Maine lobstermen because these whales are not migrating in the Gulf of Maine so much and they're not inhabiting it in periods of rest when they're not migrating. They're known to be going towards Canada to other portions of the Atlantic Ocean and that's where they're inhabiting and there's very few instances almost rare even of any recorded conflict between the whales and the Maine lobstermen and so even though that evidence is presented and it's there these really powerful special interests continue to lie and defame this industry because they have the ability to, they know how to use the court system. I think a way to change this is reforming sue and settle laws, the Equal Access to Justice Act. There is an appetite to fix this law. It's kind of a um, obtuse law. It's from the 19, late 1970s, early 1980s. And originally it was meant for protecting consumers. Um, let's say they were wrongfully done by something so you could petition the government to get some sort of reward for whatever grievance you have. But it's been weaponized by people, especially lawyers, uh, who can charge a pretty penny for their services and they exploit that law and they find ways to use it. They use advocacy groups, they find individuals who have been supposedly wronged and then they, they use that law, weaponize that law and sue and sue and sue. And some of the judges reject those court cases, but then they're not, they're relentless rather. Uh, they don't give up. If they lose in a lower court, they try to take it to the Court of Appeals and then ultimately to the Supreme Court. But they're able, with the help of very powerful lawyers and a lot of millions of dollars from foundations, special interest groups, to be able to dominate news coverage and kind of define the narrative here because of how much money they have. However, when you unpack their work and you unpack their claims, none of it holds up in the court of public opinion. And the main lobstermen, unfortunately, are on the receiving end of these vicious attacks and this vicious slandering and libel that is coming from these individuals. They're not wealthy. A lot of these people, um, they they may be servicing, let's say a a wealthy clientele because lobster is a lot more expensive than let's say other things we get in the chain or the supply chain. Um, It's a lot easier, maybe it's a lot easier to procure beef and chicken, um, even with inflationary prices. But lobster is seen as kind of obviously a novelty item. Uh, but everyone can eat it in Maine. Regular working people eat lobster too, um, even though it is more expensive and it's expensive because of the, the process that goes into harvesting it. I've done crabbing and I understand why now crab cakes are really expensive in the grocery store because you have to harvest the crab. You have to lay down the pots. You have to pick them up. You have to then uh, deconstruct the crab. You have to uh, dress them, take out the meat, do this. There's a lot of things that go into it same with lobstering and I'm hoping to see that in the region I'm, I'm going to go talk to some mean lobstermen sometime in late spring early summer next year I'm trying to finalize those details soon but to really learn about the industry and see the safety measures and precautions they take but it does come with reforming some laws I would hope that um, people outside of the area this is kind of my personal thinkings of this and I think it even makes sense from a journalistic standpoint I think people who are sympathetic with the plight of the Maine lobstermen, who understand that they're good stewards, that they're conservationists. One Maine lobsterman, I think it was on Jesse Waters' program on Fox News, recently said, we were conservationists before it was cool. And that is very true. These people inherently want to make their resource a lot better. They don't want to impede on um, wild marine biology or marine wildlife. They want to coexist with them. And they love seeing wildlife. Anytime you go fishing offshore, commercially or recreationally, you love seeing birds flying. You love to see... Uh, swells with different fish, you like to see whales submerge and and emerge from the surface of the ocean. People like that. And and it's, they're an important part of the ecological balance. Like the lobstermen know their place in the ecosystem, and they can't exist without, you know, secondary, tertiary animals and, and these critically endangered species too. And so to me, it just seems that the the preservationists have a lot of money, they have a lot of legal power, And they do have some supporters in very important roles. They have allies in the federal government now who are attuning their rulemaking to these lawsuits and to the demands of special interests like the Center for Biological Diversity, National Natural Resources Defense Council, PETA, Sierra Club, all these types. These are very, very powerful special interests who largely give to the Democratic Party. And they're never challenged so much. I don't know if if it's um, conservationists of all political stripes coming together to create outfits to combat them legally, politically. I know there are uh, different groups on the hunting and recreational fishing side that do, uh, but I think probably um, different conservation stakeholders will probably come together recognizing, you know, even if I'm not adjacent to Maine lobstering, these special interest groups are going to attack my livelihood, my ability to do this, my ability to run a business, or my ability to offer produce to people. So I think it comes down to, yes, fixing the laws and fighting them tooth and nail in the courts as well. And I think we could, and there are people who are doing that um, in other areas of wildlife conservation, but they are very, it, it, it's its out there. They are very powerful, but I don't think they can be untouchable. I think there is a way to kind of erode their successes in the courts and challenge them in the court of public opinion. its It's starting to happen. It's just gonna take a lot of effort.
2: Yeah, Gabrielle Hoffman joining us. I'm going to borrow something from our progressive friends a little bit here because I think it fits, but there's a disproportionality to these workers because you mentioned it in your piece. This is a $1.4 billion industry that's hinged on 4,500 people. That's an amazing ratio. Mm -hmm. So when you're talking about an industry that's that lucrative, and yes, it's a luxury item now, but it wasn't always that. Lobster used to be the garbage food that the fishermen kept for themselves because nobody else wanted it if you go back 100 years, believe it or not. This is, this is very much something that has emerged and built a market for itself, and it's hinging on only 4,500 people. This is one of those areas where the regulation should really, you mm-hmm. know, not to go all socialist on everybody for a second or up with people, but these workers really do need protection because the proportionality of such a small workforce for such a large sector of an economic thing they really do seem to need some protections here, not regulations forcing them out of existence. It should be going the other way, shouldn't it? Shouldn't they be getting extra protections like, Hey, this is a lot of money and a lot of people benefiting from a very small group of people. We should be looking at giving them a little bit of benefits, maybe not, you know, preferential treatment, but certainly they should get some considerations here, not the other way around. Is that a fair way to look at it?
7: I think so. And it doesn't really have to go along the lines of collective bargaining or things like that. I think, people just on the outset can recognize and I don't really want the government to meddle with them even more but I think what we're seeing on the ground now with uh, private interests coming to their aid financially and morally and legally uh, all these different stakeholders and and people who are vouching for the Maine lobstermen I think they could create an apparatus even outside of government to say let's insulate our folks and let's help them and protect them and shield them from future attacks I'm not sure if it comes in the form of uh, greater protections in the Maine legislature maybe in Maine's I have to look through this for a future reference, but I think maybe in um, maybe the main legislature already tries to protect them, but we don't see that obviously reflected in federal lawmaking because they don't view them as an essential industry. They probably view them, this administration in particular, probably views these individuals as contributing to a lot of problems, much like how they would perceive oil and gas developers, I feel like they put them all in the same camp, they're different industries, but they view them as extractive and negative, and they're not having a positive impact on the landscape, which is not how we should be viewing these individuals. And I think a lot of people don't understand in terms of where we fall on on this chain and and where these conservationists fall on this chain, you may complain about, you know, lobsters are contributing to the demise of one particular species, and let's get rid of it. So what what happens when you do that? You're going to create these secondary effects and it's ultimately going to hit the consumers whether or not you consume lobster lobstermen it's going to hit you somehow it's going to you won't see it you won't see it in banquets you won't see it at events you won't see it at your lobster shack or your seafood shack much like with oil and gas you call for the dissolution and development of it by an arbitrary deadline it's going to have downstream stream effects a little differently than lobster removing lobster wood because you're seeing more so um, people's livelihoods hit rather than seeing a total collapse, I would say in the economy. Um, but but they, they both have deleterious impacts if you were to eliminate them. Um, and they would have a lot of downstream effects for consumers, for those respective industries. It's not good to put these conservationists in a bind and make it difficult for them to operate because they're going out of their way, like I said, to make accommodations. They are willing partners. They want conversations at the table. From what I've read from different reports, and I've been getting emails from different kind of lobster interests, like lobster unions, and then like people in kind of like trade associations. So different people have been reaching out to me and saying, we really appreciate your work on this issue. So even people who may not necessarily um, agree all the time, I think the the Lobsterman, the cause of the Lobsterman has unified a lot of different factions in, in Maine and even outside of Maine. And so when they see people understand their industry, they'll come to you and say, hey, could we talk? Or we'd love to hear your feedback. We'd love to share ideas, things of that sort. And so um, I think, I don't know what, what kind of protections. I'm, I'm not so <laughs> coherent or well-versed on, on what would need to be done because I don't want, um, let's say, the government to come in under good intentions and then you know create monopolies or things of that sort. I'm, I'm always worried about that. But I think they have to be recognized at least as an essential business who's contributing to sustainable fisheries in the past. We would never really see um, either one political party go after lobstermen. But these, like I said, these radical preservationists have a very, very iron, very firm iron grip now because they see that they're losing power. um, When certain things are ceded to normalcy, people like to see true conservation win and true conservation has worked in this country and we don't need to be pitting the interests of keeping a healthy economy with environmental stewardship. That's why I've done my podcast. That's why I go fishing and hunting myself. I believe that I live, eat and breathe it. I could you know, benefit from doing these activities more according to my busy schedule, but at, at the surface, I believe this. There are many others out there, all of us, e- whether you're immediately involved or even removed from it, people do want these two kind of spheres to to meet and and to work together, and it's very possible. We've done a great stewardship model that's the envy of the world. Is it perfect? No, by no means. Nothing is perfect, but compared to other countries, having these different standards, allowing people to be productive and successful, all the while seeing species rebound, we won't see dolphins, whales, and others rebound if it wasn't for a fisherman, commercial or recreational. We wouldn't see iconic species like grizzly bears, gray wolves, American bald eagles rebound if it wasn't for hunters because of all the monies that go in to help endangered species get off the endangered species list and to make their full recovery. So people don't know what they're attacking. They don't understand kind of the the pipeline that exists. They don't understand who are the true conservation stakeholders. And that these special interests, they come about this from the outside. They have no involvement. They just like to sue. And they say, we know what's better for everyone. They don't get to know these individuals. They don't know them as humans. They really don't care. They're kind of bulldozers. And they want to bulldoze them out of their path for financial gain and with no gain to the environment. So it's, it's a very dangerous course we will be if this preservationist philosophy of environmentalism continues to prevail. But I think there's an appetite with the American people to return to, or to rather adhere to, true conservation, which allows for both the lobstermen and the right whales to coexist and exist.
2: Yeah, Gabriella Hoffman joining us. Let's wrap this up by going through that nomenclature though. Preservation versus conservation versus environmentalism. I don't call myself an environmentalist because the word's kind of gotten toxic in a lot of okay. ways, but but I am a conservationist. Look, I grew up in the woods. I grew up in West Virginia. I love the outdoors. Preservation is important. There's things that need to be preserved. Sure. Monument Valley needs to be preserved. There's mm-hmm. no commercial reason, natural resource that needs to be preserved. Anwar's the size of South Carolina. Mm-hmm. We can carve out a couple acres here and there mm-hmm. for some oil or whatever the case may be. Those are two different things, but both of those get labeled with Preservation. Yes. But they're very different. Preserving, you know, a historic house in the city is one thing. Preserving something the size of a state. We need to have a conversation about some Mm -hmm. free use. How do we have a better conversation about that? Not just policy wise or lawmaking wise, but also on our social media accounts. And when we're just talking amongst ourselves, that terminology is really important. It's something we skim over, but we shouldn't because the language there really, really matters. I'll throw you another great word on there. Old school world. My conservation comes from the way I grew up and was raised out in the country of stewardship, which is another good word word that fits in here. How do we start talking about this in a better way?
7: I think on an individual level, I'm starting to do this. I've been lecturing to different student groups across the country in the last year. I talk about this on my podcast in my writings. And if I have the fortune ever to write a book, I think my first book would be about how conservation is conservative and then explaining about it from a big picture kind of way, the differentiation, and then obviously hooking it in with how conservatives can do this. But it's a philosophy that's open to everyone, not just conservatives. But I really want to personally hone in on that more. And I think um, with my individual efforts, a lot of people have started to use that. They've started to use the moniker conservation is conservative. I don't have a trademark to it, but... I've kind of made it popular in a sense in some circles. So people see me do it and they're like, okay, we'll do this too. And so maybe I've started a trend in that respect. So I think individually um, that's what you have to do. You have to explain the difference. Like you said, there are certain places where preservation is paramount. I recently went to different sites in Arizona and Utah to highlight areas where conservation are great versus where preservation works. I think in the national park system, the 63 national parks and then their adjacent kind of like public lands too with it. its complicated kind of framework, but very easy to understand when you dig into it. So I think there's pretty wide consensus about keeping the national parks, which are off limits to any type of multiple use activities, except for, let's say, recreating, hiking, things of that sort, and occasionally fishing and very rarely sometimes hunting in like maybe one or two national parks. But Largely kept off limits to extraction of any type or recreational hunting or fishing. In most cases, bar none for hunt, uh, hiking. Um, people agree with keeping that because there's something beautiful about these national treasures. You go to elsewhere across the world; there are their national parks are not really that impressive. We do a great job, even with some of the bureaucratic inefficiencies. They're not really good with upkeep of national parks. That's why the Great American Outdoors Act was passed to give permanent funding to certain funds within that law to ensure that the roads are built well, the structures are kept intact, we can accommodate more people, more visitors to the parks. That's great. And then when it comes to the to the more kind of complicated tiers of public lands like national monuments, national monuments can either be preserved or conserved. But I worry that the Biden administration is using national monuments as a way to designate land that should be open to multiple uses to make it secluded and eventually prepare them for national park and not everything should be a national park. And I know it's counterintuitive for someone who likes going outdoors to say that, but not every area should be given that designation. It should be for an exceptional area and then you can keep national monuments open to multiple uses um, and and keep it that way because not everything should be a national park. Then it kind of dilutes what a national park is, um, even though there are 400 some odd properties in the national park service. Then you have Bureau of Land Management and and uh, Forest Service lands, which should be open to multiple uses, whether you are cattle ranching, timber, harvesting, um, and many, many other types of things, hunting, fishing, running a guiding business, things of that sort. So we already have the infrastructure in place, very much so to do that. And, um, and I think also visiting these areas personally, it's one to say, yes, you know, let's, let's make everything into a national park, or yes, you know, preservation everywhere. But when you go to meet local people in these areas, these are often rural communities. And I've had the pleasure of meeting a lot of said individuals, county commissioners, activists. I've traveled to Idaho. I've traveled to Utah, to Arizona, and I'm going to be traveling to more places to talk to different people who are important members of their community um, opposing big government overreach or big scale questionable renewable projects. And it helps to visit these people, to hear their concerns, to learn about them, to learn about the areas they live. What is at stake if you were to build large scale projects, so-called renewable projects, where the energy that's going to be harnessed is going to go out of state in the case of Idaho. That's something I learned there. Um, so visiting these places is extremely pivotal. Not only are you going to have a great experience, if you get to interact with the locals, you're going to learn so much more about you and about the country than you ever would. And I think too many people, whether they live in the Acela corridor or metropolis, they're still very removed. And so when they come about saying, yeah, let's have preservation everywhere in every corner of the United States, you don't understand that not every place is the same. You can't have a big size fits all kind of attitude because every locality has different demands, has different interests, has different challenges with landscape and uh, financial needs, things of that sort. So what works in one place may not work in another place in a top down size, big size fits all kind of framework. And so that's what people don't understand. What New York City wants is not what, let's say, Twin Falls, Idaho wants. Everywhere is different. So going outdoors, enjoying national parks, seeing what's out there is extremely important. A lot of people have been recreating outdoors in response to the COVID pandemic, which is a silver lining, a positive development to come out of all this mess. Um, But it really takes going outside your echo chamber, going outside the ivy tower, Meeting with people and having an open dialogue and a conversation, getting to know people and not imposing your views, which is what a lot of these preservationists do. So learning the nomenclature is important. Visiting these areas, talking to locals, having an understanding of why they may be opposed to top down government overreach, why they like to do things their way, why they're not backwards and wanting to have that and why they support multiple uses when it comes to public land or um, having private property rights when they're managing property rights and whenever their land falls on public lands and those disputes ensue. And so it's not difficult. It shouldn't be difficult. And if I can help lead the way with the conversation, if people want a guide, I would like to be the Sherpa <laughs> with with conservation, I guess, um, in that because it's super easy to understand. I can't be the only person talking about this. And so I could give people a template to run with and, and to go. Um, There's a lot of uh, things, at play. And, and we can help change the conversation and move away from environmentalism. Because like you said, it's a dirty word. I don't call myself environmentalist. I say conservationist. And you make the distinction of these two spheres of environmentalism. It makes it much more clear. We can resonate with people who are kind of in the middle. If you're coming from a center-right perspective, they love hearing that term better because environmentalism has become a very su- solid word. Um, and it, it needs a lot of rehabilitating. So I think conservation is the better word to use when you want to appeal to people for stewardship and, and all that.
2: Yep. And I would encourage, I'm going to be selfish, all you D.C. folks, if you'll just look out and turn left and go a couple hours over to West Virginia, you'll come to a lot and help my state out economically a little bit. I'd appreciate that. Great outdoor stuff there. You'll find it all over. Just a hop, skip and a jump from, I think the Metro runs almost right into the panhandle now. So you can do it. Go out and get out, touch grass, touch some trees. Yes, Gabriella Hoffman, one of our favorites. You've heard it advertised right here on this program. She has a great podcast where she Delves into all this stuff. Districts of conservation. Let folks know about that since they hear the commercial about it. Uh, let them know where they can find that. Let them know your very busy schedule, where you're writing, where you're tweeting, <laughs> your own little newsletter that kind of condenses all that. Let folks know how to keep up with you, my friend.
7: Yes, very briefly. Thank you again also for pushing the podcast. It really means a lot to have supporters like you. So, yes, on any podcast player, I prefer directing people to Apple. That's the best channel to listen, but We have a lot of actually interviews this month, even though it's, we're going into the holiday season, lots of great content. I've been interviewing some really cool up and comers and newsmakers that aren't really known kind of in the political space. So I hope people check out the podcast this week in particular. I spoke to some really great stakeholders all across the board, one individual, one gentleman who brought me down and a whole host of women to go deer hunting, um, some newbies I'm kind of in the advanced beginner stage. And so I talked about his nonprofit, and he's a serial entrepreneur, really fascinating guy. And he was just so generous in opening his family farm to us and, and to others. And so I really like his story, and I want other listeners to to learn about it. I spoke to a uh, expert on cataloging firearm statistics from Heritage Foundation. She's really great, Amy Swear, um, probably one of the most interesting people cataloging uh, this. And then I spoke to the director of the Virginia Fly Fishing and Wine Festival in an episode coming out tomorrow to talk about riparian rights and access areas, his new book on veterans fishing, and then what to expect at the upcoming Fly Fishing and Wine Festival near Richmond, Virginia early next year. And so I like to interview people and and bring regular folks to the forefront because everyone loves to talk to politicians. Politicians are great. They may get you some hits, but I think these storytellers are far more impactful in my mind because they can go a long way in shaping opinion, bringing people into the fold. I just don't want to bring people who are just going to yak. I, I like doers. So I like bringing on doers to the podcast. Um, yes, I have a Substack that comes out every Friday. I also have a MailChimp that comes out Monday. And the Substack kind of goes into detail more. It's called Outsider on the Inside. And Once we get enough subscribers, I may start to create some kind of exclusive content. I won't take away from traditional access, but I may add some enhanced kind of exclusive features, maybe previewing interviews like a first listen for reasonable rates when I get about a thousand subscribers. So for now, (laughs) subscribers can enjoy the content for free and then we will add supplemental content to not take away from what I'm already putting out there. But yeah, it's kind of a repository of news you may have missed in, in the conservation space and elsewhere. So yes, and social media, blue check marks everywhere. Very easy to find me. Young Voices, I'm a regional leader. Um, That's how Andrew and I, of course, connected. It's a great program. We're looking forward to our upcoming uh, classes for 2023. We have some new contributors on the horizon from my understanding. So really looking forward to that. And yeah, I have other roles, too many roles to list, multi-hyphenate. But yes, you can Google me and find me almost anywhere writing regularly for town hall. So thank you, Andrew, for having me. Always fun to talk to you.
2: She's so busy that she's actually at home today recording and I didn't even recognize it because I'm so used to talking to her in a hotel room somewhere because you're a busy bee. It's a great podcast. You do great work. You become a good friend. That's why we keep you as a regular here on Herd Tell. Thank you so much for the time, Gabriella Hoffman. You're great. Of
7: course. Thank you.
2: Thank you, ma'am. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. She hasn't been here in a while, but it wasn't because we didn't want her. She's just busy. Uh, she's another one of these super sharp Young Voices contributors. Kelsey Grant, Research and Policy Coordinator for Consulting Forum and the oil and gas companies on decarbonizing. She's also done some policy and climate work. And we have missed you, Kelsey. Welcome back.
1: Great. Thank you. I'm so happy to be back. finally.
2: Yeah. Good to have you. Um, let's start here. You, you work in and around the D.C. area. You hear stuff. It seems to me that when the Inflation Reduction Act went through, the narrative kind of changed. We know it got held up because of the climate stuff for a long time. We know what happened with Joe Manchin, and we'll get to that in a minute. Climate and environmental policy in it kind of went from the biggest deal to an afterthought to trying to slide some of it back in to now we're talking about it again. Can you center that needle back up for us? Because it seems like this thing in the policy on it has been kind of all over the place.
1: Uh, that's a, a fair characterization. The Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA, has been across across the board. Well, the, the entire reconciliation bill, it's been a, a long ruling process to really get for the Democrats to get something across the line. But to take, take a step back, just so our viewers know exactly what the IRA is and what is contained within it in terms of climate-related provisions, you know, this was the budget reconciliation bill. It contains provisions that are uh, meant to address healthcare costs that are meant to re- reduce the, the deficit and also to address climate change. So it's not solely a climate related bill and Republicans had reasons to not support the bill that had nothing to do with climate change. I think that's really important to say. Um, in terms of the climate related provisions, this bill contains things you know like low carbon energy tax credits for hydrogen, for carbon capture and sequestration, direct air capture. It includes um, a methane fee. It includes increased um, royalty rates for offshore and onshore fossil fuel leasing. It also includes a ton of environmental justice provisions. And so this bill is the result of months and months and months of negotiating between the House and the Senate, trying to, I think, to appease um, the Democrats' more moderate members like um, Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin. Um, and this is what we're left with. And Republicans have been um, very critical of the bill and just narrowing into the climate related provisions. They've been particularly critical of provisions like the methane fee and increased fossil fuel leasing rates. Um, I will say that Republicans have been historically supportive of things like the 45Q carbon capture tax credit. But despite that, it's largely been seen as a policy or political defeat for the Republican party. And they continue to be very critical of the climate relay provisions in the bill.
2: Yeah, Kelsey Grant joined us. Let's start right there, though, because uh, the incoming, of course, now the Republicans are going to have the majority in the House. The incoming leadership and sort of the, the louder members of the Republican uh, caucus, they've taken to using kind of the old playbook on this. They're saying, well, this was a gre- this was the new Green Deal thing and all that. It was not that. It wasn't anywhere close to the New Green Deal, which, by the way, didn't get a single vote because they were, the Democrats refused to vote on it on a on a matter of principle. That's not what this is, but that's where the rhetoric is going. So we can see where this rhetoric for the new Congress is going to be headed. Mm-hmm. How do we parse through that to what was actually going on here? Because as you mentioned in your piece, even their own party, there's some Republicans starting to kind of chip at the edges of that. It's like, well, wait a minute, we can't call everything the New Green Deal because next time mm-hmm. the New Green Deal comes up, we won't have any authority to talk about it. Parse this down for us a little bit. What is it? Not under the buzzwords, but what should the Republicans be saying about this bill going forward?
1: Yeah, I, I, I want to reiterate your point that this bill is not the Green New Deal. In fact, I and other Republicans and conservatives have been critical of Republican Party leadership for calling it the Green New Deal or saying it's a part of the Democrats' radical climate agenda. I think they're really shooting themselves themselves in the foot when they say that because there are a lot of climate concerned young conservatives out there who are supportive of some of these provisions. So I think that messaging is not going to land well, particularly on young people's ears. And so I'll also say, you know, while I think there are some members of the republican party who have adopted this kind of language and rhetoric saying it's a green new deal not all republicans have and there are some leading voices within the republican party who have already expressed or demonstrated the need or the the ability of republicans to lead on this issue so i think like a great example will be representative john curtis the founder of the conservative climate caucus he's been working with republicans to understand the climate issue and understand what kind of conservative climate solutions they can put forward. There are other Republicans in the party that are really stepping up to the plate like Lisa Murkowski, Senator Mitt Romney, um, Senator Kevin Kramer, Senator Braun. there, There are many Republicans also who are coming forth and saying we need to have Republican leadership on this issue and conservative solutions can help us address this problem, perhaps even better than some of the solutions or policies being proposed to on the left. So I just want to give the Republican Party credit that even though some are really criticizing the IRA, some, I think, are really stepping up to up to the plate and saying, OK, there are alternatives out there.
2: Yeah. Kelsey Grant joining us. You kept pointing it out. So let's just talk about it. The younger part of the Republican Party uh, seems to be a little more open to some stuff on climate and the environment beyond just the traditional conservation stuff. I, I think there's movement here. How politically do they capture that movement, though? Because we know the, the energy rhetoric and the climate rhetoric gets way over the top. We know we have the wackadoos in the U.K., in other words, where they're gluing themselves to, you know, walls and pavement and streets and stuff. That that stuff's easy to, you know, it, it speaks for itself that it's crazy. Nobody wants to deal with that. We, we're we not quite to that level here for the most part. But there is a lot of this big, like you said, just calling this the Green New Deal again. Well, that's not actually accurate and it's not actually helpful. What's the terminology and the policy explainer? Because policy doesn't matter at all if you can't explain it, right? What's the explainer to those younger generations that the GOP should be looking at to kind of get them in on this? Hey, we're doing a little bit of evolving here. We still don't want to wreck the economy over it, but we hear you that you want to talk about these issues. How do they address that, do you think?
1: Yeah. In in a second, I'll talk about some policies that they've pulled young people on just so we can, can get a taste of what policies young folks on the right might support. But what I'll first start off in saying is that I think the Republican party would do well to really lean into a long-standing conservative principle which is the free market. You know I think the Republican party can lean into free market climate solutions. I think it can be a, a, a winning approach with young people. Young people are so many young people are sold and bought into the idea that to address climate change we need a heavy-handed bureaucratic regulatory approach to reduce our emissions. I think Republicans can come forward and say, hey, actually, these free market solutions are better than these big-handed Green New Deal kind of ideas. And so that begs the question, well, what are these kind of free market ideas? I think a great example would be a revenue-neutral, modest carbon price. And so Frank Luntz has actually polled um, Gen Z and millennial Republicans um, and conservatives on whether they would support a revenue neutral carbon price. And the majority of, Repo- of young Republicans said that they would. And another important point is that these, this, uh, a carbon price actually been shown in several studies that it would actually be more effective in reducing greenhouse gas emissions than more regulatory heavy-handed policies being proposed on the political left. So I think the Republican Party can kind of lean into these free market market based solutions that are more effective than some of the policies that Democrats have been pushing for.
2: Yeah, Kelsey Grant. Okay, you teased it. Go ahead and deliver on it. Um, When you're talking about those policies, not the buzzwords of the policies, what do they actually do? Because you talk about like, well, we're going to reduce carbon. That doesn't really mean anything to most people. When you just say like we're going to reduce carbon to most people, that doesn't mean anything. Right. They don't have a and something to work off of. How do you change that and talk about, well, this policy will make the air cleaner. This policy, a lot of a lot of issues with water out west. We're having a major crisis with water conservation. This is going to help us with the water situation. We're, we've got the cleanest air we've had in 100 years, but we can make it even cleaner going forward. This will be a process that we can have real green energy jobs, not the proverbial unicorn ones that never seem to show up just to pass a bill. How do we get that language right to match those policies you're talking about?
1: Yeah, I think there are certain issues. I think this gets into language. Once you care about what young conservative Republicans care about, then you can adjust your language when I talk about it. I think you hit on some of them. I think you kind of like localize the climate issue or benefit climate policies, you know, clean air, clean water, That's what, um, there's bipartisan support and interest to those kinds of climate-related benefits. I think, and perhaps this is, I'm just speaking for myself, but I I think young conservatives would care about, you know, emphasizing the geopolitical benefits of certain climate policies. So there are climate policies that can really put the United States in the driver's seat of decarbonization policy, technology, and globally. So for example, you know, I I spoke about a carbon price, they can actually apply that at at the border, which would be called a border carbon adjustment. And a border carbon adjustment is really a tariff or a tax on carbon intensive imports coming from countries like China. And so the United States has a low carbon advantage and a policy like this would really level the playing field and give us the upper hand in the global low carbon technology energy market.
2: Uh, Kelsey Grant with us. You mentioned it here. Let's talk about it from a political side for just a second you talk about the Republicans and the democratic party. I feel like, is this fair to characterize it this way? I feel like just the Republican party and our friends on the right, just being against whatever the left does on energy and climate isn't enough anymore. Like we've seen this in other issues where like, you can just say you're against it, but at some point you have to have an alternate policy to present them. It seems to me like the heart of your piece and the heart of some of the stuff you're getting at is it's not just going to be enough for the right to say, Oh, we can't do this environmental stuff. Can't do this climate stuff they actually need to provide an alternative. Is that a, way, a fair way to say this?
1: I think that's a, a perfect way to say it. And like I said in my, my piece, you know, if Republicans don't write the terms of climate policy, other, pe- other people will not write it for them. And that's another way of saying, if you don't want to lead, well, you'll be led. And real leadership, I think, in the context of climate change, because this is a really difficult, complex issue, Republicans have to be putting forth really smart, innovative, creative, solutions. So I, I I totally agree with you. and Republic this is not a, a problem Republicans have. This is a human issue. we it, it's much easier to criticize what somebody does wrong rather than proposing your own solutions to a really complex issue. but I, I really do think it's a it's not a political or policy strategy that will help the Republican party win in the end.
2: Yeah, Kelsey Grant. Been far too long since we chat. It won't be so long until the next time, my friend. But until we get you back on, can you let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with you and all the things you have going on?
1: Yes, absolutely. So you can follow me at Twitter at Grant underscore um, Kelsey. I regularly and often um, write op-eds um, for Real Clear Energy, and I'd be happy for anybody to check them out.
2: Yep, she does good work. We enjoyed having her. So glad we got you in. Glad you're well. Won't tell everybody all that story, but very happy to see you, my friend. We'll talk again very, very soon.
1: Great. Thank you so much for having me.
2: Thank you, ma'am. Folks, if you've listened to the Heard Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast district of conservation it's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from dc and beyond from topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers gabriella keeps listeners appraised for the latest news stories while elevating important voices listen to the district of conservation on apple podcast or wherever podcasts are played Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on The Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics From the vanilla, to the ADHD, to the international accountability, to orangutan. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. Ah, Welcome back to HerTel. Okay, he's back again, a friend of ours. He's a UNC Chapel Hill grad, but for the purposes of this conversation, we are not going to hold that against him. Uh, we usually talk uh, environmental kind of stuff with him, but we're thrilled to have him back. We're going to talk a little bit about online things. Elijah Gallick, great to see you again, my friend. How are you?
8: I'm doing pretty well. How are you doing?
2: Hanging in there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I love this piece. I told you when we were prepping it, uh, you wrote in free the people about um, online stuff. Let, let me go at you with this though. I kind of recoil when people start talking about online and big tech and things like this. And then they go straight to civil liberties. Cause that almost feels like a big jump. You know what I mean? Like, well, civil liberties is, you know, the civil rights movement and equal protections and equality like that. But then when I calm down and I just think about it for a second, I'm also one of those guys who advocate that the internet is one of the greatest tools of freedom we've ever had. And I believe that I think it's one of the most important tools for freedom that we've ever developed as humans. So if I really believe that and I'm consistent with that, then yeah, you kind of got to make that leap, don't you? In some ways.
8: I definitely believe that. And I think it's more true than ever when so much of our political discourse and frankly, so many of our like social connections are happening increasingly online um, and a lot of people, for example, don't even engage in politics outside of the internet. You know, there's a whole swath of people who are on anonymous or have anonymous accounts, or are too maybe nervous to really get engaged at like the pol- more public political levels. So they use the internet as a really important platform for having a much more uh, expansive number of people who can like contribute their voices.
2: Yeah, and I'm one of them because like, look, I talk, you know, because I do this show, I do other things. I talk a lot of politics online. I almost never talk politics at home in my real life, yep. especially with my family and in my home when I'm just, we we almost never talk politics. It's it's not necessarily a rule. It's just the way I do it. That's segmented. I, that's what I do for work. And I don't do it there. Uh, of course, other people do it the other way. But then again, I don't have Facebook. So because I'm smart. And that's like I say, like I have family and friends and I want to keep loving them. So I'm not going to have Facebook. That's exactly where you get into some of this, though, is because, you know, Facebook has kind of its own culture. Twitter has its own culture. Instagram has a little bit of its own culture. This isn't just big tech. This isn't just social media. We use those big words. This is a very fragmented, balkanized kind of thing. But more and more of our public sphere, more and more of our dialogue, you just talked about it, more and more of our politics and media and interactions are going through these mediums.
8: Yeah, definitely, and I think it's why. As I I taught so the center of my piece is around the Department of Homeland Security's uh, misinformation disinformation campaigns, and the reality is, if it didn't matter, DHS wouldn't care. They wouldn't be doing this program at all. So the fact they're even doing it, I think, is pretty indicative of where we're at and like why it matters, how that, and the stakes that are involved. If they view it as for in their sort of from their perspective as a real threat to democracy and truth.
2: Yeah. Elijah Gallet joining us. Here's the background on this. What happened was back during COVID people filed uh, reporters doing their job, by the way, filed a whole bunch of freedom of information act requests. Those usually take time, of course, especially during something like a crisis, there's time sensitive things. So you have to wait until certain things before it's released, but you are entitled as an American citizen and journalist uses freedom of information act reports. So they got all this stuff from DHS from the last uh, three years or so from these freedom of information. Now, to be fair to the government, some of this got way blown out of proportion because here's what happens. And you can speak to this because you went through it for the piece. By the way, there's a lot of links in your piece. Make sure you read all that for yourself. That tells me it's a good piece. I love one. It's got a lot of stuff I can read and not. part of what happens with this information. And to be fair to the government, this is why it's so hard to deal with this. Something like COVID is something hits the internet. It's bad and it's wrong and everybody knows it's wrong. But then five days later, it kind of fixes itself because the ecosystem is like, well, no, that's wrong. And it comes all the way back around. Mm -hmm. Well, government regulation doesn't work that fast. So by the time they get around to regulating misinformation, misinformation is already kind of taking care of itself. That's kind of the core problem that they're dealing with. The government does not to be fair to the government. I'm going to bash them here in a minute. But to be fair to them, they don't really have a tool to deal with something like that, do they? So they end up going to the sledgehammer of regulation. Is that a good way to kind of encapsulate the problem here?
8: I Actually, I think that's a great way to talk about this. Um, You know, the nuances and particularities of online speech are just not necessarily a great match for government uh, regulation. They're just not going to have the precision and the nuance and the context to really do this well.
2: Yeah, I think so as well. Now, that's where you start getting into messier areas. Is it malfeasance? Is it bias? Is it the government putting their thumbs on the scale? I think COVID is almost a bad example to use for this because nobody handled this really well, but you do have a public health crisis. So the government's going, oh, we have to fix this because people are dying. The problem, of course, is everybody, you know, if you can do it in an emergency, you can do it the rest of the time. How did it hit you when you started looking at this? Because, again, the government has a public health role. They need to get information out. Where do you put your line when you start looking through this? Because, again, there's a lot of gray area here. Where does this go from just the mass nations of government to, oh, this is a problem that needs to be fixed and addressed?
8: Yeah, I think for me, when I was looking through the report, especially in regards to the stuff around COVID misinformation, I very much framed it around exper- You know, the early days of COVID when there was a lot changing all the time. And so there were honestly sometimes mixed or conflicting reports coming from, uh, you know, federal public health officials. And this was not necessarily their fault. You know, there were still, it was very early in the days of the pandemic. Uh, I generally try not to fault people for how they respond in the initial days, because we really didn't know anything. But for me, that kind of, for me, it was like difficult to square having this really strong, strict regulation alongside the evolving information that we were gathering, right? And part of that information gathering was happening through uh, organic discourses online of people bringing in different types of experts who maybe did disagree with the CDC, for example, and maybe they were wrong about some stuff, but it was still important to have those voices there. And on top of that, I think this kind of really, um, really harsh regulation only increases suspicion of public health officials and of the uh, generally accepted consensus line on things like vaccines and uh mask wearing and lockdowns and all that uh everything that happened right like even from the public health officials perspective they should be weary of using these really harsh tactics because it only breeds further suspicion and people who are prone to be suspicious about these agencies
2: Elijah Gollett joining us. Let's go to the big tech section of this because big tech's relationship with government is really the core of this. It's not just people yelling online about bias and whatever the government and big tech are going to have to have a relationship. Okay. What's that relationship going to be? That's the heart of this. You get into this in your piece and you use Facebook previous meta. I can't say meta with a straight face, but Facebook and meta, you use them as the example here where, We have seen for the better part of a couple of years now, the the Facebook meta people go up, they sit before these hearings and they talk about regulation. They know that some kind of regulation is coming. Let's have a grown folk talk here real quick. They're trying to get ahead of it so that they get a say in the regulation so that the regulation is favorable to them. That's the background of all this. So now when you go and look at the information you're looking at in these freedom of information releases is, okay, is it? appropriate for somebody who is trying to get themselves regulated to their benefit to have a say in the regulation. And then when you put that with this information is where you start getting into, wait a minute, the government and big tech do not need to be cozy partners in this. Yes. Tech needs to check with the government on things like, Hey, are we in compliance here? Is this information accurate? That's one thing, but they don't need to be having a friendship relationship of like, Oh, well, you don't really. Here's Facebook. This is simplified, but Facebook is going to Congress going. You don't really understand this, but we understand it really well. So we will write this regulation for you. And that's where this really people go. Wait a minute. This isn't okay. This is where there can be some real malfeasance and where the worst parts of government like cronyism and things like that can really start to play.
8: Yeah. And this is this part of my piece was really the hardest part for me to write out clearly. you know, just for some background on my own thought processes when I was working on this was I think the situation is a fit super well into a lot of our traditional theories of how like, you know, uh, government versus business or the private sector work. Right. And I think there were a lot of um, not bad analyses out there that came out after, briefly out of this report. but I think they're missing things. They wanted to kind of shove it into either. This is an issue of protecting the free market. Or an issue of, um, for example, from some, and I mentioned them in the piece, some uh, right-wing commentators using this as evidence that there's some, like, broader collusion or regime almost trying to suppress their type of speech, for example. And I wanted to really draw that out and show how complicated the relationship is and how this isn't exactly a friendship. They're not necessarily, the two parties aren't necessarily at war with one another, right? Uh, I was trying to perceive it as like, as you said, this kind of complex relationship that regulation breeds, uh, that cronyism breeds, it breeds bad incentives that people act on, uh, for their own self-interest.
2: Yeah. And you take it to the angle of, we should be skeptical of not just the big government and we shouldn't be just skeptical of big tech. We need to be skeptical of the increasing regulations of the social media companies in general for that very reason. Um, it's a good line in your piece. I'll just say it to you for the point purposes of the discussion, but you say we ought to rein in executive powers and provide more leeway to private companies to compete against themselves to determine the best content moderation society. The reason people come back from that is because that's messy. That's ugly. That's not neat. That takes, we're seeing it with Twitter and Elon Musk right now. It's messy. It's not neat and clean and people get uncomfortable. However, any other relationship in your life, if you have an interpersonal relationship, you know, working those things out or not, and they can clean and messy. If we go, well, that's just icky and I don't want to deal with it. Let the government deal with it. That's not only going to breed all the problems we just talk about. It's also kind of an abrogation of our responsibilities of citizens is like, hey, we can't complain about big, bad regulation if we just go, well, I don't care. Just make it go away so I don't have to hear about it. Do you see that as kind of a prevailing attitude with some of this? Because I start seeing that creeping and then that's where you start losing some of your freedoms is that kind of apathy.
8: Yeah, I think people really like it is really hard for people to separate their own personal feelings and opinions about other people's viewpoints or things that they, you know, for example, might consider terrible and things I consider terrible. Right. There's plenty of stuff on the Internet I think is awful. And in some perfect world where the government worked the way I wished it did. I would you know happily have them ban some things right but the reality is we live in a very complex world where there's a lot of unintended consequences of government interference and we can't make policy based on our views of what we wish the government was like or what we wish society was like or how we wish people were we have to Uh, create policies based on what we know is true based on the fact that people are messy and they don't necessarily respond to these type forms of speech suppression or bans with you know uh, just simply changing their viewpoints or stop talking about them that's not what they're going to do they're going to find ways to get around that and also in the case of these major corporations when they get into this you know the on one hand policymakers might want to hope that if they increase these regulations that it's going to be an genuine check on the powers of these really large social media companies but in fact it is oftentimes as i mentioned the piece with facebook for example an opportunity for them to get ahead of the rest of the game get ahead of their own competitors to help shape those policies in their favor um in ways that may disadvantage their competition
2: yeah elijah gollett let's wrap it up talking about it this way though um we have to have accountable government. The only way we have accountable government is to have information about what our government is doing. You had a list of things in here you talked about that was um, at issue with this particular document dump. Um, Russian interference in elections. They interfere. They try to interfere in every election. Let's all be adults here. But, you know, what does that entail? Because, that again, that's a messy, tough conversation. Uh, COVID-19 we know about. Biden's botched withdrawal from Afghanistan. I know that was a personal one with me. I was upset with that. I'd like to know more about the decision-making process there. Things like um when the government gets involved with racial unrest, all these sorts of things. We know we know from history the civil rights movement there's a lot of stuff that was buried and not covered. When we have a Freedom of Information Act for a couple of years from now. What do you think we could do so that the next time we do this it looks a little better or it looks a little more accountable? what can folks do in their conversations either online or just interpersonal to kind of put the ball forward on government accountability and go, look, this information is vital for us to know what our government is doing. And the government can't be colluding with these big tech companies. There has to be some sunlight here for accountability to be able to stay in play.
8: Yeah. I think the biggest thing is congressional checks on administrative and executive powers here. That's going to be the first and foremost thing is Congress doing its job, one of its core jobs, which is to actually do legislating and not just hand it off to our executives and unelected bureaucrats in places like the DHS. Um, This will involve putting limits on these types of rules and like making sure there's at least some oversight when they're trying to put in, implement these new rules around uh, content moderation or their interactions with these big tech, tech companies. On top of that, I actually think there's something each of us just regular folks should be doing, even if we're not policymakers, right? I think a return and a recognition of the importance of civil society and civilness and civility in our uh, public discourse matters a lot. And that even when you disagree, it is not necessarily an invitation for you to call on the government to use force to stop someone from doing what what someone's doing, even if you think it's despicable speech, right? We all have an obligation to understand those distinctions and draw those lines and ensure that, you know, we can continue to live in a free society, both at the legal level and at a broader, more cultural level.
2: I got to tell you, Elijah, when the best answer you can give me is I think Congress is going to be our best option. I get nervous, (laughs) Um, but I'm being a little facetious. The fact of the matter is most of the problems in our government right now is our dysfunctional Congress because it all revolves around them because they are not—they don't only make laws, but they also have the power of the purse, and they are also supposed to have oversight over the other branches of government. And pretty much all our major problems come from a dysfunctional Congress. So you are not wrong, sir. You have a good point there. Elijah Gallet, this is an excellent piece. There's a lot in here. There's a couple of things I took contention with. We threw you some hard questions. You handled them well. Make sure you read the entire piece. We're going to link to the whole thing, freethepeople.org. A lot of links in here. There's a lot of details in here and nuances you're going to need to work for. Do your homework, folks. Elijah, really appreciate the time. Let folks know where they can keep up with you until we get you back on. This is, what, your third time on here? We're getting to be a regular. We like talking to you. Let folks know where they can find you and keep up with you until they see you on Hertel again.
8: Yep. You can find me at Market Urbanist with an S at the end on Twitter. I also have a Substack where I occasionally post, usually things related to urban policy issues, but a range of other topics, including book reviews at youngurbanist.substack.com. That's young with a U instead of an OU. So,
2: yeah, I got to be all fancy like that. Uh, I already talked to him too. Going to talk some more environmental and conservation stuff. He does really good work in that realm. Uh, Elijah Gallat, always enjoy talking, sir. Appreciate the time. Thank you for having me. All the music on HerTel is provided under a creative content license from Monstercat.com.